Check out Diederik.blog and DinosaurRockGuitar.com. Books and guitar gear mentioned in the program are listed and linked in the podcast description. All original content played in this podcast is utilized strictly in accordance with fair use principles. Section 107 of the Copyright Act. Hello ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Diederik's Beach Bar. Today is another Dinosaur Rock Guitar program. And Dave will be joining the show as the last couple times when we talked about Tony Iommi and Richie Blackmore and many other great rock guitar players. And today we'll be talking about none other than Jimmy Page, the founder of Led Zeppelin and considered by many the godfather of hard rock. And that's all there really is to it in terms of intro, because we'll be talking about him for a very long time. And if you're listening to this right now, you know why you've tuned in. The man is an absolute legend. These episodes are going to be in several parts because there's just so much content. We talked for we talked for over 12 hours in total. And with all the clips cut in, the whole thing just becomes way too long to just release in one episode. So this first part is going to be about his life. So it's sort of a biography, but we'll also be talking about his guitar playing techniques the guitars that he uses, the amplifiers that he used throughout his career, and all that kind of stuff. So if you're interested in how he got his sound on this track or that track or that album and the way he uh, came up with ways to record things, that's what we're going to talk about, but also all the wild rock star antics that the man and the band were infamous for. And the episodes that will follow after this one will be about the discography of well mostly Led Zeppelin but also the stuff he did with The Firm and David Coverdale and his solo album that he did with many different singers and players but obviously most of it will be Led Zeppelin related because that's the body of work that everyone really truly cares about and knows about and now without further ado here is Dinosaur Dave from DinosaurRockGuitar.com to join us and talk about the legendary Jimmy Page. Enjoy, everybody. All right. Well, today we are back with Dave from Dinosaur Rocky Time, and we are talking about Jimmy Page today, just like we did about Tony Iommi, and before that, Richie Blackmore. And before that, two times a little general chat about the big rock stars. But Jimmy Page is going to be the topic of today's show, which is quite a big person to cover. And I'm thrilled that we're doing this because I'm a huge fan of the man's music. And so are you, Dave, and you know a lot about it. And I've learned quite a bit about it, too, about him and his music quite a bit in the last uh, couple months because I've been uh, listening to the music a lot and reading biography and watching interviews on the internet and of course listening to Zeppelin's music over the years but uh, yeah today we're going to do a deep dive into Jimmy Page's career yeah and this is the big one I mean you know this is the in many ways the 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 guy who is 
the largest in stature of these players in some ways. And I want to come out before we actually dive into the discussion and say, for those people who may not have seen our past podcasts, where I have mentioned this on occasion before, but if you don't know me and you haven't heard any of that before, I want to, you know, full disclosure that Jimmy Page has probably been my biggest musical influence if I had to pick just one uh, over my career as a musician. And he's been influential to me as a guitarist and as a songwriter and also as a producer. Um, And when I think about the things that I want to achieve as a musician, Jimmy Page is the first name that comes to mind for me, because he was a guy who had artistic vision. He was able to write great songs and play them very well on guitar. And he recorded them and he produced them himself. And he retained total creative control over every aspect of that artistic side of his output. And he does to this day. He still does to this day. Um, And for me, that is sort of the template of what I choose to do as a musician is to, you know, I want to be able to have, you know, a vision for what I want to do. I want to be able to write great songs. I want to play them well and record them myself and produce them myself and do it all myself and not give up my artistic creative control to anyone else. I want that. That's very important. And he was the absolute master and king of that of not letting anyone get away with anything about how his art, his music, his vision was presented to the world. That he, he retained that with an iron grip. And like I said, he still does to this day. So anyway, he's huge for me. And while I come into it with that bias, I also hope to show that I, I don't have blinders, blinders on about you know, the negative aspects of the man too. He has, you know, some issues that we will dive into. He hasn't always been, um, you know, a shining beacon for humanity, but uh, from the artistic side, he's just a giant. And, um, and we talked about Blackmore and we talked about Iomi. And if as big in stature as those two are, Jimmy is probably even bigger in stature. Not so much uh, specifically just on the guitar side, but for the whole Zeppelin vision and popularity that he created and, you know, the uniqueness of that band and the scope of that band. You could you could easily make the case that Zeppelin had a wider scope than Sabbath or Deep Purple or Rainbow. They just were stylistically far broader than those other bands. And a lot of that was, you know, down to Jimmy. Well... One thing I have found is that there's no band that's quite like Led Zeppelin in terms of using different instruments, having both very hard electric guitar rock and just great, lovely, folky, acoustic work in there. Like their their music is very diverse. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I mean by stylistically wide and broad in that. And, you know, the thing that, and they've said it themselves, whether it was, you heard it from Jimmy or one of the other members, probably Plant, saying, you know, for all of the bands that tried to copy what we did, they only copied the the hard rock part. They never tried to copy, we're going to do, you know, Celtic folk music or something like that. You know, they, they never seemed to have the scope. So they all came off as being, you know, it, it launched a a definitely a hard rock genre Zeppelin did 
uh, in a way that rose out of what was beginning with Cream in the late 60s, the mid to late 60s. And obviously, well, maybe not so obviously to everybody, but if you know anything about Jimmy Page, he was in the Yardbirds before he was in Led Zeppelin. And, you know, he was sort of figuring out, and before that he was a studio musician, and before that he, you know, he was just sort of figuring out what it was he wanted to do as a young man. And by the time the Yardbirds were packing it in and breaking up, um, he had a good idea what he wanted to do. And because he had been a studio session man and interested in production in his early years, he not only knew the kind of band he wanted to have, he knew how to get the sound he wanted to get in the studio, which we'll see later as we get further into this, was incredibly important to the way this, this band sounded and, you know, why it sounded like nothing else and why it sounded bigger than Cream and why it sounded in some ways better, bigger than The Who and, you know, other loud bands that preceded Led Zeppelin. But yes, you're right. I mean, the whole acoustic side of the thing is is often just sort of like, not overlooked, but sort of like pushed to the background when we talk about, you know, you know, the genre that they created, you can call cock rock. I mean, the swagger of Led Zeppelin, the, you know, the thing that made them uh, more than just what they sounded like. It was the attitude. It was the bravado on stage, which which we see develop over time. You know, it's it's one thing to see Jimmy Page in an Argyle sweater in 1969 on stage at the Albert Hall. But I mean, then he becomes this this otherworldly, larger than life character as we get into the, you know, the early 70s and his stage costumes developed and everything. And he became very mystical and very uh, an intriguing figure. And there was, a, I mean, the word is mystique. I mean, there was just a shitload of mystique around this band that they created. And a lot of that was due to an adversarial relationship with the press after they after they got going, they realized that their their press reviews were lousy, so they stopped doing press, and they stopped you know they stopped being available. So they you know, this is a pre internet era thing. You didn't see them everywhere. There wasn't you know you couldn't go watch them everywhere on YouTube or anything like that. You didn't see them unless they were making an album that came out or you know doing a tour, and you know very rarely were they on TV. They didn't do much TV. Um, and part of this was because, you know, Jimmy Page remained with that iron fist around every, every aspect of what they were going to put out. And, um, we're jumping the gun here. He he had, a, you know, a, a life before Led Zeppelin, but if, if we're honest, Led Zeppelin has been, and like I said, remains to this day, the guiding force in his life. What he spends his time doing now is is curating the Zeppelin legacy, whether he's doing it with writing coffee table books about his life or Zeppelin's life, or whether he's doing, you know, another set of remastering the albums or whatever it is he's doing. It's still it's Zeppelin focused. And we just um, I haven't seen it yet, but there is a new a new documentary that's come out. It's the first one that's been authorized by Jimmy. And it's it's I think it was at the Venice Film Festival earlier this year, and it's due to be in theaters by this fall sometime. Yeah, I read about that. And yeah, yeah. and 
again, you're going to get this sanitized version of what Jimmy wants you to know about the band and where you focus on, you know, just the music and just the art and ignore all the unpleasant stuff. But uh, it'll still be well worth seeing. It'll still be wonderful. And, you know, the thing is, is that the art that he created still stands up and everything about it is still magnificent. And, you know, a lot of people have, you know, become, I guess, blasé to the idea that like, yes, I love Zeppelin, but I don't listen very much anymore because I've heard it so much. But every time you revisit it, you know, you go back and it still, it still hits as hard as it ever did. I mean, it never diminishes. It's just timeless. And in that respect, what they achieved in, you know, basically 10 years has lasted ever since in the subsequent 40 years. Uh, and, you know, it has been, it has overshadowed everything else Jimmy Page ever did, and rightfully so. Um, could argue he could have done some more than just, you know, in the last 40 years. But uh, it, it is an epic achievement. And, you know, one of the things we can we can certainly say about Jimmy Page is the man has a colossal ego. But if anybody deserves to have a colossal ego about their art and their artistic achievement, it is Jimmy Page. So I cut him some slack on that side of the ego stuff. The other side we'll talk, we'll talk about. But let's let's back up a little bit. That's just sort of like painting the overall picture. Jimmy was a guy who started playing guitar, I guess, around age 10 or 12 or something like that. There's a video of him that will show of where he's playing the skiffle thing with this other guy. He's about 12 years old. He's on British television. What's, what's and, a skiffle? Uh, skiffle was this pre-rock and roll music phenomenon that was happening in the UK in the... When would it have been? I guess it would have been around the mid-50s. And it was uh, Lonnie Dunnigan was was the king of skiffle over there. And um, this was around the same, you know, know, in the earliest days of what was just about to become rock and roll. You know, I mean, I think skiffle predates Elvis a little bit. It says it's Um, a genre of folk music with influences from blues, jazz and American folk music generally performed with a mixture of manufactured and homemade or improvised instruments. Right. And that's sort of important in that... um, you're talking about, I don't know what it says for the dates there, but it's it's post-war, you you know, post-war England, yeah. right? Yeah. Right after World War II, or shortly after World War II, where there's still not a lot of uh, goods and services available in the UK, like guitars and things like that. They didn't have a lot of that stuff. Um, so what, you know, some guys would, you know, might get a, have a guitar, like, a, like a, usually an acoustic, they called it a Spanish guitar, a steel string, flat top acoustic guitar and somebody would take a tea chest which you know you'd get a box of tea or something like that it'd be this big box of tea and they'd they'd make a broomstick base basically they'd stick a broomstick into this big empty box of tea and stick a string on it and somebody would go plug one string usually and you know percussion might be a washboard you know you've seen like people play washboard it was really sort of like this this we, we want to play music, but we don't have a lot of stuff, you know, to play it on. We will, you know, find our own way to do this. 
and no electric guitars at that moment in time, really, in, in England. Not widespread anyway. And, you know, this is like, there was still rationing in those days. Yeah, it was uh, rough you know, Food rationing, then, yeah, yeah, right. And a lot of those guys, the guys who became, you know, the, the big rock stars like the Stones and Zeppelin and, and all of these people said basically when they heard Elvis Presley, the world went from black and white to color for them. It was a different story in America. America never had, you know, had the crap bombed out of it. It was never, you know, never really had to recover from, you know, the the economy being what it was during World War II. They never had to rebuild buildings and societies and stuff like that. America was, was largely untouched other than the loss of life amongst soldiers. They didn't really take it like the civilians did, right? So this was a like, you know, a grim time to be growing up in the UK. And a lot of these folks were looking for, you know, a way to distance themselves from that generation of their parents and the war effort and everything. So they were, you know, looking to make music and finding ways to make music. And, you know, little by little, you know, the guitars came into the society and stuff. It was still pretty primitive. Um, there's a good book out there called 17 Watts, and it talks about this period of time and what those kids did in, you know, the kids like Jimmy Page and kids like Jeff Beck and all of these others of that era who, you know, were making their own guitars, for example, at least at first. John Entwistle built his own bass. You know, these guys would just do whatever they could do to play until they got better instruments, and they finally did. And one of the things Jimmy Page talks about, and I think we have a clip of this, is, you know, he was one of, I don't think he invented this idea, but it became sort of like, well sort of a well-known thing that guitar strings in those days were really thick and really stiff. And the G string was a wound string, not a bear string like it is now. Okay. And you couldn't really bend the way you can bend now. It's Guitars are comparatively easy to play now. Oh, wow. So there's been an evolution in guitar strings through the years too. Well, yeah. I mean, part of that was Jimmy said what he would do was he would take a normal set of guitar strings throw off the thickest string, throw it away, get a banjo string and use that for his high E and move everything down one string. So then he had a string that was on the G string that he could bend. Oh, wow. And this was like the beginning of light strings that people started going, how are you doing that? And they'd pass this knowledge around from player to player and they'd go, ooh, that's a good idea. And everybody started doing this kind of thing. And then eventually the string manufacturers caught up and said, oh, people want lighter strings. Let's make some lighter strings. And that did eventually happen. But I mean, before that happened, people were just, you know, finding their way, finding out how to, how to do what they needed to do. Um Finding how to amplify their guitars, how to how to put a pickup on on an acoustic guitar, so and then play it through your your mom's stereo or something like that. Their hi fi, <laughs> they were all just trying to find their way. You know, Jeff Beck talks about making his own amp the first time he made an amp, and um, you know they'd buy a kit or something like that, or they take apart a radio and they they put it back together so that you know it would play through out through the speaker and would. And they said, you know, it sounded terrible, but to us at that time, it was wonderful. So there was, you know, that was going on. That was Jimmy Page's early environment. 
And he started playing the skiffle music, which was popular in that day because it had more rhythm and it had more blues. It had more, yes, folky too, but it had, it just had more groove to it than a lot of things that were on the radio at the time. And most people over there who were there at that time said the stuff that was on the radio in the, in England at that time was terrible. And it was, you know, not for them, it was for their parents and all of that. So when they heard this this other music, they started going in that direction. And then you get, you know, rock and roll hits. And then everybody goes, oh, this is the way we're going to go this way. So he does the skiffle thing. And there's this clip of him on the TV. And they and, they, and the guy asks him, and you'll see this, what do you want to do when you grow up? He's 12 years old, Jimmy Page, being interviewed on TV. And he says, I want to do biological research. And boy, did he do a lot of biological research when he got to Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Can you pl- can you, from a teacher, do you yes. play anything except skiffle? Yes, Spanish and dance. I think. Do you as well? Can you mm. move on? What are you going to do when you leave school? Take up skiffle? No, I want to do, uh, well, biological research. It shows that he didn't think he was going to be pursuing music at that age. And he also, I believe, went to art college and you know was studying painting for a while and was always an art lover and an art collector. He, once he got money, he started really collecting art. But he was also you know, a good painter. And um, what he found was that by the time he was 16 or 17 years old, he was a good enough guitar player to start getting in and doing sessions. And uh, he broke into that by being able to play some rock and roll licks and um, at a time where there were not a lot of players who could play you know, rock and roll licks. There was this guy in that London scene called Big Jim Sullivan. And he was sort of like a mentor to those guys. He was older. Okay. And he was a good, real good player. I, I want to uh, go back a little bit. Like, why was yeah. he on TV when he was twelve? I don't know. He just he, he got lucky. He was in this little skiffle act with this other guy, and uh, I can't remember whether they said he he won a won a contest to be on the BBC or something like that. And um, I think it's in that book we talked about the uh, the book that uh, both of us read recently is called. Um, the definitive biography. Yeah, Jimmy Page, the definitive biography. It's 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 probably the best one I've read. That's you know pulls the least punches. Yeah. Um, but I think this was a story like he may have won a contest to be on TV or something like that. I can't remember why, but the point is this footage is still out there, and you see him. He's this little kid with this big guitar on him. It's you know the guitar is almost bigger than he is, but he's playing it and he's playing it well and he's you know doing this this thing and. So by the time he was, I think, 16, 17, he was able to break into, he was good enough that he was able to break into the session scene. 
And like I said, they had Big Jim Sullivan and Jimmy Page at that time when they were both doing sessions. They called him Little Jim because he wasn't Big Jim Sullivan. And also, by the way, another guy who was in that scene doing sessions was Blackmore. And Richie Blackmore was a session guy, too, at that time, long before either of them had had made any name for themselves. They were both doing sessions for uh, guys like Joe Meek. And you can you know, you can Google Jimmy Page's sessions prior to his being in Zeppelin and see all the things he played on. But, I mean, he played on so many singles and so many things that you might be familiar with. He was, you know, he was brought in to play some guitars in, in some sessions for The Who and some sessions for The Kinks, which didn't particularly go over well with either of those bands because they thought they should be able to play their own stuff. But in those days, the producers would bring in people that they knew would, would deliver the goods, and they didn't think much of the young rock musicians who were 19, 20 years old as players. Most of them were not as good as, as guys like Jimmy Page at that time. So they would bring them in and have them play on sessions. And he played, I think, on um, things like the Goldfinger main song for the Bond movie with Shirley Bassey. And he played on lots of different kinds of sessions and made a lot of money comparatively at a very young age. For the time, he was making a lot more money than like people his parents' age doing sessions. And he still has all of his studio logbooks and notebooks from that time so he can if you if you ever go on like his facebook page he most of what he posts is like on this day in in november of 1963 i was playing this session with this with this band or these people or something like that and he can point to where he was because he still has he the man kept everything the man has kept and we'll talk about that too but the man kept everything that he ever did ever played on ever wore uh, all his gear. I mean, he he has got a museum's worth of stuff in his possession. His recent book, the Jimmy Page Anthology, goes through a lot of that that content of you know where he was, what he was doing through all of those years and stuff. So he was able to, for example, he bought a, a houseboat called Pangborn as a very young man, I think, you know, he may have been 20 or something like that when he bought, I mean, think about that, buying a house in that era, right? And not a lot of guys who were playing music had that kind of financial wherewithal to do that. So he was making good money at that time. And that came, that, that became very an important thing later when Zeppelin started to get going. But it was really about doing those sessions at that time. And then he started getting tired of doing the sessions. He said he was doing a lot of Muzak and a lot of things that were not particularly interesting to play on. And that's when he started, he fell sort of backwards into the getting into the Yardbirds. He and Jeff Beck had been friends since the time they were like 12 years old. And they used to sit together and and play guitars and... um, Yeah, but by the way, Muzak is like background music that you hear in stores and stuff, right? Yeah, really, really boring stuff. And while it paid well, he was you know, he was getting antsy about doing that, and he was watching what was going on with his peers, basically with Clapton, with Beck, and you know seeing what was happening in in the mid '60s where this guitar boom was starting to happen, and he kind of wasn't a part of it at first because he was off doing sessions. He was he was the initial person that the Yardbirds asked to replace Clapton when Clapton left, 
and he was too busy doing sessions at the time that were paying really well. And he said, I can't do it right now, but my friend Jeff Beck would be perfect for you guys. So the Yardbirds went down and saw Jeff Beck playing with his band at the time, the Tridents, and they hired Jeff Beck. And the Jeff Beck period is, is I think, in everybody's mind, except perhaps Jimmy Page's, the strongest period of the Yardbirds. I mean, it really was where they had the bulk of their hits. They had their hit for your love with Eric Clapton and he was barely playing on it. But um all of the, you know, classic Yardbirds songs are really the Jeff Beck era. So, you know, whether it's shapes or things or Heartful of Soul or Evil Hearted You, all of this stuff over under sideways down, all of this is Jeff Beck era Yardbirds. And Jeff held that gig for couple of years and Jimmy Page went to see them one night on a night where um, the singer got drunk and the bass player quit and it was all happening on stage like this big epic train wreck on stage with the band imploding on stage and and Jimmy thought it was hilarious and funny and but by the end of the night he had agreed to fill in on bass with the Yardbirds while Jeff Beck was still in the band and um they still had another rhythm guitar player named Chris Drea. And um, so now the Yardbirds became Jeff Beck on lead guitar, Chris Drea on rhythm guitar, Jimmy Page on bass, Jim McCarty on drums, and Keith Ralph on lead vocals. And it became very clear very quickly that Jimmy should switch to second guitar and Chris Drea should get on the bass and they should swap and let Jeff and Jimmy trade licks, basically. It was really something to see them push push each other in that. Because they were always, as, as close as they've been, they were always very competitive with each other as well. But the people who saw that incarnation of the Yardbirds live said it was pretty impressive to watch the two of them go back and forth and stuff when it was working well anyway. And um, under that sort of guise of that lineup, they released, I think, two tracks, one called Psycho Daisies and one called um, Happenings 10 Years Times Ago. And that's a really fun track. And it's the two of them having what the Yardbirds used to call a rave up. It's, it's chaos. It's just really raucous and really for its time, pretty heavy. And as Jimmy Page became more and more a lead guitarist in the Yardbirds, I think it unnerved Jeff Beck and and got on his nerves and stressed him out. And he was always a volatile character anyway. And I think he wanted the space to be the guy. And having another guy up there who could trade licks with him, he said was fun for a while, but then he got, you know, he wanted to do something else. So eventually Jeff Beck flakes out and, and leaves the Yardbirds and the Yardbirds are left as a four piece with Jimmy Page on lead guitar. And they do an album called little games, which is a really, it's, it's a sort of flawed album because they didn't have a lot of creative control at that time. The producer was suggesting tracks that they did, that they hated, that they didn't want to do, but they had to put them on the album. So Jimmy, Jimmy basically said, this album has a few good tracks that, you know, I really like. And then a lot of this stuff was just garbage. They made us do. And they went on as a four piece for a little while. And eventually 
their popularity seemed to wane and, and was they were not being they were not they had the name but it wasn't it wasn't they weren't making forward progress anymore in a way they weren't making that money anymore in a way so that the the rest of the members of the band wanted to split the band up or they just didn't want to do it anymore really uh, so the band folded leaving Jimmy Page in possession of the Yardbirds name and the Yardbirds catalog really uh, uh, at least the part of it that he was associated with how old was he and at that time he had to be about 24 or something like that because I think he's about 25 when he starts Zeppelin. And at the time, the Yardbirds were managed by a man named Peter Grant, who would later on go to manage Led Zeppelin infamously, one of the, one of the great rock and roll manager figures of all time, probably the most notorious manager in rock and roll. Him and, and Don Arden, basically, were the two most notorious uh, rock and roll managers in history, I think, really. Peter Grant um, is like, a, 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 I learned quite a bit about him from that biography, and he... Yeah, quite a character. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want him uh, against me. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. There was, I mean, in recent years, Peter Grant died, I think, in... 95, you know, I think. Something like that. He died a little while ago, um, and he had mellowed a bit in his old age, but he was a, a giant of a man, um, very tall and very large, and had been a professional wrestler <laughs> at one point in his life. And he was a very intimidating character. Uh, who didn't take any crap from anybody. And um, he, at that time, we'll talk more about Peter, but he, at that time, was the manager of the Yardbirds. So the Yardbirds are now no more, and it's Peter Grant and Jimmy Page driving in a car somewhere, and Peter says, well, what do you want to do now? And Jimmy says, I want to get a band together. And I think, I, I, he said, I know exactly what I want it to be like, but I just have to find the right players. And Peter Grant had infinite confidence in Jimmy Page and infinite respect for Jimmy Page. And he basically was Jimmy Page's right-hand man and muscle throughout the entire Zeppelin era of, of, you know, keeping anybody in line, people outside of the band, people inside of the band. Peter Grant made it very clear to everyone in Led Zeppelin Early on, this is Jimmy's band. You're a part of it, but this is Jimmy's band, and don't forget it. And that was that was always the way Peter operated. So we had now this this character of Peter Grant, who was way ahead of his time and revolutionary in, in terms of um, his management style and what he thought was right to protect the artist. He was he was a guy who was absolutely going to protect his artist. He was not a guy who was going to rip off his artist ever. He was one of the few people who was so against the idea of ripping off my own artist, which most managers are not above doing that at all. So he was ultimately trustworthy, the ultimate foot soldier for that band. And so this is where they start to team up and figure out how they're going to create Jimmy's new band after the Yardbirds. And the plan was after that, you know, they would find the right musicians. And then the idea was Jimmy would make the album, would produce the album himself. 
And rather than go to a record company and say, hey, I'm Jimmy Page of the Yardbirds. Can I get a record deal? They did it the other way around. They said, Jimmy's got, Jimmy said, I have enough money to finance this album on my own because I've made all this money during my session days. Yeah, he, so he I was, can go. Uh, yeah, he, he was like a millionaire when he started Led Zeppelin, from what I understood. Yeah, that's what I read too. I mean, millionaire seems seems unrealistic, really. In, I mean, he may have been like comparatively a millionaire. Maybe he did. I don't know, but he had enough money to go into a studio and spend, you know, something like two thousand pounds, which was a lot of money in nineteen sixty eight. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you if you looked at that in today's dollars, it would be a lot of money. Uh, but to to produce an album on his own dime, so he went in. We're jumping ahead again, but the idea was to to make the album first and then shop it to the record companies and get the best deal they could get, which was so, sort of you know revolutionary. Again, this wasn't the way it was done. The way it was done was you had a band and somebody signed you to a label and then you made your album. By Jimmy way, wanted to do it the way that he could control everything. Two two thousand pounds back then would be uh, like fifty thousand today. Yeah, so you think about that. And think about so like, you know, he may have not had a million pounds in the bank, one million or something like that, but he had enough that he was certainly well off and could do that out of his own pocket and gamble on his own creativity and his own vision. And here's where I mean, this is the thing that is one of the things we're going to talk about is this vision that Jimmy Page had to create a band that was sort of building off of what was starting with Cream and the loud bands and the guys who were playing loud through Marshalls. This is before Sabbath. This is before um, this is before Deep Purple was really hard rock. It was around the same time Deep Purple were, were getting together, but they were they were much more of a psychedelic rock band in that that time frame. So anyway, um, Jimmy Page starts looking for musicians and I can't remember who came first, but I think John Paul Jones, who had known him from the session days, John Paul Jones was also a session player, a genius musician in his own right, who could play just about any instrument you handed him. A uh, wonderful song arranger. He would do. He was doing a lot of arrangement work for other artists. He was working with Donovan in that era, and Jimmy Page was playing on the Donovan sessions, so they got to know each other that way, and. John Paul Jones was looking to do something and he and his wife said, oh, isn't this your friend Jimmy? He's like he's looking for a bass player. You should call him. And so John Paul Jones called up Jimmy Page and said, hey, I hear you're looking to put a band together. I would like to put myself out there as a bass player if you're interested. And Jimmy was smart enough to realize this guy could add a ton to the whole sound of the band, whether he was playing keys, whether he was playing acoustic instruments. He was just a, a marvelous musician and the ultimate utility guy that you want in your band. And so I think he came first. And then the idea was he wanted Steve Marriott as the singer at one point. Steve Marriott had been in The Small Faces and then he was in Humble Pie and he had this this bluesy whiskey voice kind of thing. Um, and... Steve Marriott was under Don Arden's, you come back to this, Don Arden's management, I think, at that time. And when Jimmy Page and Peter Grant came sniffing around to see if, if he was available, 
Don Harden said something to the effect, you're going to have a hard time playing guitar with broken hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is Sharon Osbourne's father, by the way. Oh, really? Apple doesn't, yeah, doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> yeah. He was a gangster. He was a total gangster. He would hang people out windows and stuff and threaten them. And so basically they were told in no uncertain terms, stop sniffing around Steve Marriott. You can't have him. <laughs> and if you try to get him, you, it's, bad things are going to happen to you. <laughs> And and Peter Grant was not yet at, at his level of stature to – he was also – he had been working for Don and Don taught him a lot of about the business. So he was not going to go up against Don Arden and, and you know pirate one of his artists, right? So that didn't happen. And then they talked to this guy named Terry Reed who was another really good singer on the scene at that time. And Terry Reed uh, – at that moment in time, gets asked to join Jimmy Page's band, and he knew Jimmy from the uh, from the Yardbirds, and he turned down the gig. He had his own solo career going, and he didn't, you know, this is the guy who turned down being the singer in Led Zeppelin. So imagine, you know, if he hadn't turned it down, how different history would have been. This yeah. is one of those moments where we talk about what would have been if if Tony Iommi had stayed in Jethro Tull, right? <laughs> well, what, what would have been a good example of his uh, singing so we can maybe imagine him on uh, Black Dog or something? Yeah, I think, yeah. I, well, you can't imagine him on any track specifically, but I mean, you could you could look up, I mean, you can you can find Terry Reid in, in YouTube and, and, and see what he sounds like and stuff. I think he had a bluesy voice, a strong voice, a good voice. He didn't have Robert Plant's voice. But what he did say to Jimmy Page was, I can't do this, but there's a guy up north named Robert Plant. You should check him out. So word of mouth, right? Robert Plant had been signed to CBS Records and he had done like two singles, pop singles that had done absolutely nothing. And he was just up there playing in a local band with a drummer named John Bonham on and off that those two had known each other for years and they'd been in and out of the different bands together. And the thing with Bonham was every time there was a better gig, Bonham would leave whatever band he was in and go for the better gig. So at one time he'd be in the band and one time he wouldn't be in the band, but they knew each other very well. They were friends from the time they were, I mean, this is now Jimmy's 25, Robert Plant's maybe 19 or 20 and Bonham is also 19 or 20. And so Peter Grant and Jimmy Page, they get in a car and they go up to the Midlands. I think it was Birmingham. And they see Robert Plant in this band. And Jimmy's like, yeah, this is the guy. Let me see if we can, you know, if we vibe with him or anything like that. They basically went back down to London and they contacted Robert Plant and they had a hard time reaching him for a while because – for whatever reason, but they finally sent him a telegram or something, you know, are you interested in being in Jimmy Page's, you know, trying out for this band or whatever it was. Jimmy Page invites Robert Plant down to Pangborn, his houseboat, and they they spend like a week together just vibing off of each other, getting to know each other, playing things that excite them, playing, you know, talking about what the music could be like and everything and seeing how they connected on a personal level and a musical level. And they start doing a little bit of, you know, Jimmy Page is like, I have this idea to do this Joan Baez cover called Babe, I'm going to leave you, but we're going to do it like this and do it explosive and percussive on an acoustic and everything. And, he, you know, they were they they were starting to formulate their their relationship. And there was a time 
Jimmy Page was hoping he might get Keith Moon out of the Who to be on drums. And that came out of that session, the Bex Bolero session, where it was Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, Keith Moon, and I believe it was Nicky Hopkins on piano. And uh, that was sort of like a superstar session. Um, it was a Jeff Beck track, and Jimmy produced it. Yeah, that's, and, that's an um, interesting one to listen to. It's a great track. There's there's just so much going on there. The people in that room, to get that crew together in one room to play a song, yeah, that's really something. Right. And the story goes, that scream before the thing kicks into a different tempo, it goes through the, like, the Bolero progression, which is the Ravel Bolero progression, kind of. It certainly nods to that. And then it becomes this rock jam. There's a scream that happens right before they go into the rock jam, and that's Keith Moon screaming, and I think he hit $10,000 mic with a drumstick and broke it. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, it, they they tore into this track, and then I guess at the end they all went out for, to the pub and had a few drinks, and they talked about the possibility of putting this band together with that kind of lineup, and I believe it was John Entwistle who said it would go over like a lead balloon. <laughs> And then someone said, like a Led Zeppelin. And Jimmy liked that. Jimmy liked that name. And one of the things that was part of Jimmy's vision, and we've talked about this a little already, is that he wanted to have the heaviness, the amped up bluesy sound of Cream, but he also wanted to have the lightness, the acoustic stuff. And he wanted to indulge in his uh, love of, of folk music and Celtic music and um I guess you would call it uh, Middle Eastern music as well, and explore more than just electric blues, right? Because electric blues was the thing of that day, of that time. Most people were doing that kind of uh, rock. With, with they were doing heavy rock, it was blues-based. Page wanted to do more than that. So he wanted this thing that was called, that was sort of like, he called it heavy and light, light and shade, and... You know, a Led Zeppelin is a good metaphor for something that's both light and heavy. And so that name stuck with him and um, he chose to use it, obviously. And then um, Robert Plant had eventually said, no, you need to go see John Bonham, my friend John Bonham. He's the guy we want on drums. And they all trucked back on up to the Midlands and... Jimmy saw John Bonham play and was just absolutely blown away, and rightfully so. But, I mean, John Bonham was a fully formed beast of a musician by the time he was 18. He was a man. He was not a kid, like, you know, in that, in, in, on the drums anyway. He was that powerhouse even then, and he was the guy who was constantly getting kicked out of bands for playing too loud in the <laughs> band. And it's just the way he was built, and that, you know. And Jimmy Page saw that, and... You know, you look at that and you go, yeah, I'm going to drop this Ferrari engine into my band and, you know, it'll be it'll it'll make everything better. And the truth of the matter is you're only as good. Any band is only as good as its drummer. I mean, that the older I get, the truer that that seems to become. And whatever drummer you're talking about, you know, your band is only as good as your drummer is. And if you have a drummer who's like putting a jet engine in your band it raises everything. It raises everybody else's playing. It inspires you to play better. It inspires you to play in different ways than you might because they'll come up with something that's different and you will play off of that. 
Yeah, I, I can personally attest to that too. I remember when I lived in Florida for a while, there was this jam session I would go to, and there was one drummer called Chris Ozuna. I'm sure he's still around there. And whenever he would join the jam, it would just like, it would change everything. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's really, if you're not a musician, you can't even imagine the difference it is. I can tell you from a personal experience of mine, um, when I when I came back to New York and I started working at a specific company that I am at now, they had a company band. And I, I played in this company band for like one season, and it became too much of a pain in the butt to, to keep doing it. But the drummer was terrible, and it really held us back. And because you can't, you know, it's like you have to have, the, if you have a company band, everybody in the band has to work at the company. And so you have to find a drummer within that company. Right. And the drummer in that company was a guy who had switched from guitar to drums. He was terrible. And it really held us back. And it may it really did limit what we could do. And it limited how well we could do it. Now I'm in a project now um, where I'm making an album with a guy who is a pro. He's an absolute monster. He's a killer drummer. And I send him demos with like. Here's a demo of the song with the drum machine track, just to give you an idea of what it's supposed to sound like. Right. And he'll send me back the drum track with, you know, replace, he'll, he'll replace the, um, the drum machine with his drums. And when they come back, they sound so great that when I go in to then do real guitars, I'm playing off of what he does. And that's telling me to do different things that I never thought of. I can do this. I can I can syncopate with him. I can it, it basically inspires you to have somebody who can play that way uh, if you're a guitar player. And I don't know about every guitar player, but I know personally I'm a person who has come up with some of my best stuff jamming with drummers, it's come up with some of my best riffs. If I have to sit there and come up with a guitar riff with just in an empty room with me and a guitar, I can do it. And I have done it and I've written songs that way. But when I when I can bounce ideas off of a drummer who's good, I come up with better stuff. It just it just seems to spark my creativity in a way. And for a guy like Jimmy Page, whether it was Zeppelin or anything he's done post Zeppelin, Jimmy Page is a guy who is super attuned to playing with the drummer and playing off what the drummer does. And having Bonham is your ultimate guy for that. the Ferrari engine thing is a good uh, analogy yeah 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 I mean like my company band had a Yugo engine or, or like <laughs> you know a lawnmower engine right and uh, 
And when you when you start playing with a guy who's a monster, it really does up your game because you start playing to their level and you start realizing I can do this now because he can go with me. I can do that now because he can go with me or he can give me a beat. How many times did the song come up because the drummer started playing a beat and that you, then you go, Oh, let me play off of that. That becomes huge in most bands. So now you have the four members of Led Zeppelin and Peter Grant. They coalesce, they get together in a room they talked about this many times. The first time they got together in a really tiny room to play together, they said it was magic. The room just exploded with sound. They played Train Kepper Rollin', the old Yardbird song. And everybody, by the time they had finished playing that one song, everybody knew in that room that we have something here. We have some chemistry here. We have some magic here. This is the band. This is going to be it. And Robert Plant at that time was an incredible vocalist at that young age because his, his voice wasn't really beat up at that time. That's it would be later. He would have harder and harder time over the years, but I mean, he was a phenom at that time as was page as was Bonham. And, you know, in his own way, so was John Paul Jones. So that's when they go into the studio to do the first album on Jimmy page's dime I believe they recorded it in 36 hours or something like that. A short, you know, a very short amount of time. They had they went in there, they were rehearsed, they made the most of their time in the studio. There wasn't a lot of messing about. They went in, they got it done quickly, and when they were done, they had the master tapes. It was produced by Jimmy Page himself with Eddie Kramer, I believe was the engineer. And Eddie Kramer of Jimi Hendrix fame and all these other things that he ever produced. Eddie Kramer was the engineer of the early Zeppelin albums, and he wanted a production credit. But Jimmy was like, no, you're not producing this. I'm producing this. You're an engineer on this. You know, I know what I want. I know how to get it. And Eddie Kramer, you know, as, as a renowned producer, as he is known to be now, he claims he learned stuff from it, from Jimmy Page and that Jimmy Page learned stuff from him. And I, I don't have any trouble believing that. Can you, because, uh, can you explain the difference between a producer and an engineer? The easiest way to explain that quickly is that the producer is the guy with the vision of it should sound like this. And the engineer might be the guy who knows how to technically get that. Okay. All right. How to twiddle the knobs and do all the things to get that. Jimmy would say, I, you know, I, w I want to put the microphones here. I want to get this sound. I want to, you know, I want to do this. And one guy's the brain, the other guy's the hands. Think right. of it that way. Right, right, right. All right. Yeah. Now, it, it, that's an overly simplistic view. All right. There's a lot of, you know, if you talk about, for example, how much of Van Halen's sound was Don Landy, the engineer, rather than Ted Templeman, the producer. Ted Templeman produced pretty much all of the, the Roth era Van Halen albums, and Don Landy was the engineer. And Ted Templeman gives most of the credit to the Van Halen sound to Don. And, you know, Don Landy still worked with Eddie after Ted Templeman was not. So, I mean... There is, you know, this is a very loose generalization, but think of the producer as the guy with the vision in his brain and the engineer as the guy who helps him get it. Okay. So 
Eddie Kramer was the engineer on those sessions. And we'll listen to some of those tracks and we'll talk about some of what's noteworthy with some of those tracks. But the point of the matter was, again, now they've cut, they've cut this album on Jimmy's dime. Jimmy owns the master tapes. The record company doesn't own them. No record company owns them. The, no record company was in there saying, you got to do this. You got to do that. Where's the single? Where's the single? Right. All of the things that record companies are notor- notorious for doing because they, they did this album on their own on spec. Basically, they were banking on Jimmy's reputation. And it was a good bet because people didn't know who Jimmy was. They didn't know he was a hot guitarist. They didn't know he was a hot session guy. The guys in America, Clive Davis of, of CBS, Ahmed Erdogan of Atlantic, they knew who Jimmy Page was and they knew how good he was and they knew he was coming up with something. So they take their master tapes, Peter Grant, Jimmy Page, they fly to New York and they meet with Atlantic and they meet with CBS and they met with CBS to sort of like play one against the other. They knew they wanted to be on Atlantic for whatever reason at that time. It was it was it turned out to be the right move, but they knew they wanted to be on Atlantic. But they met with CBS just so that they could go into Atlantic and say, well, CBS is interested in this, too. So they could get a better deal. <laughs> and this is the beginning of their of their their pretty much their mercenary dealings with labels and with Later on, it would be with promoters and with with venues and stuff and how they would change the game of how they would get paid. But anyway, they come back with a record deal from Atlantic Records. I believe it was for $200,000, which, again, a lot of money in those days. And I think it was for the first four or five albums the deal was supposed to be or something like that. And the other thing about it was they wrote it into their contract. The band has complete creative control over their over their content over the album covers over the artwork over everything and it's 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 hard to get that today much less in a time where like the record industry completely dominated the artists somehow they were able to walk into atlantic records and come out with like the freaking brass ring they got it all yeah. they got the money they got the record deal but they got the ability to tell the record company to go fuck themselves when they didn't like what the record company wanted them to do. And, and is it all that, thanks that, to Jimmy's astuteness or? Yeah. And, and, and Peter Grant's astuteness as well. Cause you know, they talked about it before they went in and said, well, this is what we want. And if we don't get it, we'll get it from CBS or we'll get it from somebody else. If you want to be part of this thing. And Ahmed Erdogan, who was, you know, the genius of, of Atlantic records, he knew what he was going to, get from Jimmy Page. He knew he was going to get quality from Jimmy Page. So he was not, he was not, I think in, in retrospect, he would have liked to have retained more control than he did, but he was willing to bet on Jimmy Page's genius. Yeah. And, you know, it was a really good bet. And despite the fact that he gave them the creative control, they made zillions of dollars for Atlantic record, obviously. And, um, so they come back and they have the record deal and, they start having to uh, – they actually had to go out and start playing a few contractually obligated dates that the Yardbirds still had. They had made dates and had to cancel. So there was a handful of dates that the, that Zeppelin went out and played as the new Yardbirds. And it was and, in Scandinavia. Uh, yeah, it was in Scandinavia. I think their very first show was in Sweden or Norway, I think. Denmark. I think. Denmark. 
pretty close. Right. And um, the story there was that the Countess von Zeppelin of Denmark heard the band's name and, fl- and freaked out and said, you can't use my family name, blah, 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 blah. And they said, what are you talking about? We can do whatever we want. But this was sort of around the time they had stopped playing as the New Yardbirds. But by the time they're on that Danish TV show, which we have some clips from, they're already Led Zeppelin. So long it's not true I wanted a woman never bargained for you Sweet little baby, say what you will Turn back so much when I send you the bill von Zeppelin had, like I said, she had sort of freaked out about this and then they <laughs> calmed her down. And then she saw the first album cover with the Hindenburg on it and she flipped out all over it. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, these are, you know, some of the stories, but That's yeah, funny. they decided, they decided to, um, to put that first album out with this image of the Hindenburg going down in this, in this bizarre photo filtered way. It's a very iconic cover pretty ballsy to do that just uh yeah just uh like 36 people died you know it's a pretty big tragedy yeah but it was a long time prior so uh it's not like it was fresh in in you know fresh wounds or anything but uh regardless of whether you like the cover or not that album when it was released did very well immediately super iconic yeah, and some of the sonic hallmarks of that album are things that Jimmy Page is somewhat directly responsible for, like the sound of John Bonham's drum kit. Now, if you compare Led Zeppelin one to every other hard rock album that was coming out around that time, you will notice that the drums sound completely different on Zeppelin One than they do on any Who album or any Sabbath album or any Purple album or any other, you know, Cream album or anything like that. All of a sudden, drums sound big. And that's Jimmy Page knowing how to get drum sounds in the studio. Plus, add in John Bonham, whose sound was already big. All right. But a lot of the times, if you listen to, you know, 
Stones albums, Beatles albums, things, things that were, you know, of the, of the sixties, the drums didn't sound big in those days. They sounded kind of like cardboard boxes yeah. comparatively. Sounds All of a sudden, you know? yeah, the first thing you get on Zeppelin one is good times, bad times where John Bonham is giving a, a clinic on kick drum magic where his foot is just doing these triplets and shit that is just insane. And you hear every thump and it hits you with force coming through your speakers. When you hear it, it's it's like, it's like you're actually seeing real drums as opposed to hearing some facsimile of drums recorded on an album. This is the first time drums sound big really on this album. And that's, you know, again, that's due to Jimmy knowing how to get that sound and John Bonham already, you know, getting a good sound out of his kit. And it holds up too. It does. And, you know, a lot of that kind of thing has been sampled over the years by a lot of artists. John Bonham's drums are, are, have probably been sampled more than any other drummer's stuff has ever been sampled and used in all kinds of music, uh, you know, and yeah, I think rightfully so. And it's still, and they would get better with the, with the subsequent, I think the Sonics would get better with the subsequent albums, but even that first album has this as a baseline uh, of like a new benchmark of, you know, this is sonically different sounding than any other album that was out at that time. And the guys like, like the guys from cream were like super jealous and, uh, you know, they couldn't acknowledge that it was good and, and stuff like that. And guys like Richie Blackmore were paying attention and, and, and seeing what could be achieved if he went in a hard rock direction as opposed to a psychedelic rock direction. And um, but what did he do specifically to make those drums sound so massive? So in prior to that time, they would have the drums in the studios be like boothed off, like with, with baffles around them so that like they could control the sound and they would mic them up and everything. But what Jimmy did was he would get them in a big sounding room that had a nice ambience to it and a nice echo to it. And when you play drums in a, in a, in a room that sounds good, when you play any instrument in a room that sounds good acoustically, what happens is, you know, you get this lovely reverberation, this ambience in the room. And what Jimmy did was he would distance mic the drums. So he would get the room sound in addition to the close mic sound of the drums. In those days, we're not talking about even 24 track yet. So a lot of the times you'd have like two overhead mics, and maybe a, a mic on your kick and a, maybe a mic on your snare or something like that. And Jimmy's whole thing with miking technique, and he would do this with the guitars too, was in those days, he'd, he, you know, you would get – his thing was find a good sounding room and then capture the sound of it. Like I said, you would capture the sound of having like a room mic that's just picking up the ambience in the room when the instrument's being played. And then you add that in on top of the, the sound of the close mics. You blend it in so that you get however much ambience or reverb, if you will, that you want on this on this drum kit. So instead of them sounding like dry cardboard boxes, they would breathe, right? There'd be this depth to them. He he's, his, his thing was distance makes depth. So we don't really record that way very much anymore. But, I mean, when we talk about, you know, the iconic drum sounds like when the levee breaks – Oh, which yeah. came later, right, on the fourth album. It is the probably quintessential drum track 
of all time for drum sound. And the way they, you know, the way they got that, there's a whole video, by the way, of other drummers like Chad Smith and Roger Taylor and I can't remember who else. They went back to Headley Grange where they recorded this, which is a manor in the English countryside. And it had this big open hallway when you walked in. It was two floors up. So you had this big open foyer and they were going to get the Zeppelin was set to record there. And someone came in and set up John Bonham's drums right in the foyer. And John Bonham came in and sat down at his kit. He didn't bother moving him into a room or anything. And he started playing it in this big room, which was like, you know, two floors high. And the sound was just massive. And all they really had to do was hang two microphones over the drum kit to get that sound because the room sounded so good. Wow. <laughs> boy, oh boy. This brings back some memories. Yeah. This is the, well, it comes straight into the entrance hall and this is the, this is the hall where the uh, drums were set up and where, where Levy Breaks was recorded. We had been recording in this room here. Bonzo had ordered a new drum kit. His tech, you know, his road manager, had set it up in the hall. And when Bonzo came out, he started playing it in this thing, and it was this huge expanse. You're getting the drums reflecting off of the walls. You know, this wonderful ambience to the drums. Yeah, you can hear the, the, the reflective surfaces. You know, it's really... Live and ambient. We had a recording truck parked on the outside here. And you'd be running the wires and their cables with the mic leads, running them into the house. The mics were put up here over the banisters here. So they, Jimmy got these, these drums out of these, these dead-sounding rooms, put them in live-sounding rooms, and then captured the sound of the room. And all of a sudden, drums sounded like drums the way you hear them if you're actually in a room with a real kit. And, you know, again, that was something he would have done with any drummer, I think. But the fact that he had John Bonham, it just made it that much more uh, powerful. Yeah, you, can't, so, you can't overstate enough what a, what a monster John Bonham was. No, you really can't. <laughs> and, um, you know, I know this is about Jimmy, but it's hard to talk about these things without talking about the other members of the band and, and how important it was to the overall Sonic and the vision. You know, these were all very talented musicians, right? Everybody in this band became a template for what hard rock and heavy rock should sound like. You know, before before Led Zeppelin, you didn't have this template. Now you had this is what a rock and roll badass guitar player should look like other than Keith Richards but like a lead player. This is what your lead singer should look like. He should be a golden god with 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 pipes for days. Your drummer should be a Ferrari engine, you know, and your bass player should be able to do everything, you know? <laughs> and this became sort of the template for all hard rock and heavy metal that ever followed. It was, you know, your singer had to be this guy with the big range and this powerful voice. And your guitar player had to be a really, really good rhythm and lead player. And your drummer had to be big sounding and your bass player had to have his own thing that he added to it too. So the thing is though, as talented as these guys were, 
Plant and Bonham, especially being so much so young at the time. It was Jimmy Page's vision that really let them become how how magnificent they were in terms of, you know, would they have had the opportunity to sound like the Robert Plant and the John Bonham we know if they had never met Jimmy Page? I don't know. Right. I think their talent was there, but I think the guidance came from Jimmy and the, you know, the vision of this well, is how, how we're going to present this music. I think super groups are a good testament to that. Like It always sounds great on paper, but in practice it doesn't always work that well. When you just get a, If you get four really talented musicians together, it doesn't always turn into magic. Led Zeppelin, yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Yeah, and it can happen a lot of different ways, and you know, band chemistry and all. You know, they became very much about the difference between live and studio. Was sort of picking up where Cream left off. Not quite as indulgent as Cream, but they would go off on these long jams too, and that's where they themselves enjoyed the band the most because. Jimmy would tell you, you know, we get on stage every night and we knew which songs we were going to play, but we never knew how we were going to play them. Yes, we'd play a whole lot of love, but was it going to be 18 minutes long or was it going to be 40 minutes long? We didn't know when we started. If we just, you know, we'd go on a groove and we'd just take off and start doing all different kinds of things. And they could all follow each other and they all had such chemistry after a while that it was really fairly seamless. They would watch each other and they would go off into different directions. And you see there's examples we can show you here of them jamming out other songs during the middle of Whole Lot of Love and things like that. And they just go on these adventures. And for them as players, that was what they found the most satisfying part. I mean, they've often asked Jimmy, which he liked better, the studio or or the live. And he doesn't really, he won't really commit. He said, I guess, you know, the player in me, uh, really love that jam aspect of it and being the freedom to be able to do that kind of thing. He said, but I also love the studio and I also be, love to be able to create this, this sonic architecture of what I want to hear on a record. And that, that is really a rare, a rare kind of thing. And it was, it was even rare then. I mean, but the further and further we get away from that kind of music, you don't see that kind of jamming a lot uh, in most bands these days. So uh, it became very self-indulgent in its time, and people kind of grew tired of it over a, over the decades, and, you know, things tightened up and everything. And by the time they do, uh, for example, their last gig in 2007 called Celebration Day, when they finally reunited after a long time, and it was actually really good, one of the things they didn't do was a lot of this jamming. They just sort of played the songs, kind of the way they were on the album. And... In that era, I think that was probably the smart move. But back in the 60s, when there was all this experimentation going on, people wanted to see them stretch out. People wanted to see them stretch out their musicianship. And that's why bands like Cream and Hendrix and Zeppelin would do that. The Who would do it too, by the way. They played shows that were like six hours and stuff, right? More like three or four, I think, at the top of the thing. I think the the ones that I think we, we hear about most are like the Boston Tea Party gigs that were... They played everything they knew, and they still the band still they, they still wanted them to stay on stage. So they they jammed stuff, and they they played maybe like four hours or something like that. And then you know later on, as they had more material and they got more into the acoustic, they would play a three and a half hour set with a little break, and they did like a 
a one-hour acoustic set in the middle of the the night. So uh-huh. they go, they come out with electrics and they blast for a while. Then they take fifteen minute break, come out with acoustics, and do all of the acoustic stuff that they wanted to do. And then they go back and put the electrics back on and come back out and blast again and for the, for the finish. And, you know, yeah, I mean, you can see this in the Earl's court footage. It's really, you know, it's, it's still a benchmark. I mean, mistakes and all there's, there's mistakes in it and stuff, but I mean, it's still incredibly powerful. <laughs> did go see the 2007 uh, Celebration Day thing. You can buy it on DVD, but I first saw it in the theater when it was uh, being shown in theaters. I was really pleasantly surprised at how amazing they still sounded. And this was like Zeppelin on maybe, you know, five cylinders compared to what they were in their prime. And they still sounded fucking amazing. And the and the sound was great. And this was with Jason Bonham on drums and instead of John. And Robert Plant's voice is, you know, nowhere near as high as it once was. And yeah, they fixed up some stuff in the studio. They 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 absolutely patched up some of the live footage and stuff with uh doctoring the sound and all of that. Where, you know, maybe if Robert Plant sang a flat note, he'd go in and fix it or something. But the sound of the band was still really, really powerful. And the sound of Jimmy Page's guitars was still really epically big. In some cases, his sound was even better because I think, you know, he, had, you know, was using better, not necessarily better gear, but I mean, you maybe just hearing it better. Recording gear was probably better. Yeah. And I think they also tuned down a little bit to accommodate they might have, voice. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. But on uh, nobody's fault but mine, when he like hits that chord in that concert, yeah. that sounds yeah. just like that sounds so huge. Yeah, his guitar sounds. Yeah, it's yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, his his guitar sound on that on that was just epically big, and of course, he's standing there now, and that at that time a gray haired man, uh, finally clean and all of that, and, and playing well. And there weren't too many terrible moments in that. There were a couple of train wrecks, but uh, overall, it was like you could still catch a glimpse of the mighty Zeppelin there. And like I said, it's not like the eight cylinder Zeppelin that you saw in nineteen seventy three to 75 but zeppelin on five cylinders or six cylinders is still better than most bands yeah but that album how the west was one with uh, maybe, yeah. maybe we're skipping ahead a little bit here but that also just sounds just well the album sounds well, that's great them, that's yeah that's them in your but, prime yeah but that life life they just sound like a just so big so loud yeah it, <laughs> yeah so um that was basically the story of how they got started. And, you know, we're already an hour and a half in. So we didn't talk much about Jimmy Page's influences yet. He was influenced by the young rockabilly, rock, young rock and, roll, rock and roll players of the day, much like Jeff Beck was. Scotty Moore, James Burton, who were both Elvis's guitar players. Uh, those were, you know, really good players and very influential on those British kids at that time. Cliff Gallup also from Gene Vincent to the Blue Caps. That was Jeff Beck's big hero. But Jimmy Page loved that too. Uh, Chuck Berry, they all loved Chuck Berry. Everybody got something from Chuck Berry in those days. Bo Diddley, obviously the blues man, Bo Diddley, and other blues men like B.B. King and general blues music. But where, where Jimmy Page was really different from his peers where a lot of people were listening, like you could say, okay, yes, Pete Townsend was listening to those guys too. Keith Richards was listening to those guys too. Jeff Beck was listening to those guys too. But Jimmy was also listening to Eastern music and he was listening to Indian music and he was listening to Celtic music and country music. And that was really the differentiator in his influences and where he would learn to bring that acoustic side into the band. And one of the guys uh, that doesn't get mentioned very much when you're talking about acoustic players is a guy named Burke Janch. He's a Scottish folk player, brilliant, brilliant acoustic player. His albums are, are really good. Um, it's very strange. Burke Janch, J-A-N-S-C-H. Okay. Yeah. And, and here we have a guy who was also very influential on Jimmy Page. And here we have also the first signs of plagiarism. Uh, <laughs> The downside of, of Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin, in some cases, is they were unlike, for example, the Rolling Stones, where the Rolling Stones would be, you know, happy to play someone's song, but they'd credit the blues man for it. If they're going to play the song, they're going to not cr claim they wrote it. Jimmy's idea was, let's claim we wrote it. Let's take, you know, let them chase us for the money. And later on, people did chase them for the money and they had to settle out of court and stuff like that. But, you know, they say behind every great fortune is a crime. And, <laughs> that's, uh, a that's a good saying. Yeah, but, it, you know, it, it's largely true. <laughs> and a lot, you know, a lot of the people who were like the early the early industrial pioneers, like your Carnegie's and guys like that and Jane Vanderbilt's and all of these people who who became the 
top one percent of one percent of their own time. There are, you know, at the at the bottom of those fortunes, there's a crime usually. Somebody stole something from somebody. Yeah, there's also and, lots of stories around like the whole uh, uh, '90s computer era with Microsoft and Apple and Google. And oh, absolutely. Like Xerox had the first like point and click operating system, and I think it got stolen by either the Apple guys or the or the Windows guys. I can't remember which one, but they stole it, and you know they got there first after having stole it, and you know. Xerox remained a copy machine. So um, (laughs) you have these kinds of things. And let's be honest. If you look at the credits on the back of Led Zeppelin 1, you you don't see, at least at the time, you see Zeppelin taking credit for songs that were Willie Dixon songs. I can't remember if 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 he claims he stole Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, or if he credited Joan Baez. But if you Google Led Zeppelin and plagiarism, you're going to get an interesting education. And one of the things that he stole was a song called, that he called Black Mountainside, I believe. And if you hear Bert Janch, he's played, basically Jimmy Page stole this thing note for note and put it on Zeppelin 1 and didn't credit Bert Janch and you you know we can play a clip of both and you can see what i'm talking about so the the, the plagiarism starts on led zeppelin 1 and they've been fighting this these battles they just this year finally put to bed a, an accusation that stairway to heaven was ripped off from a band called spirit and it was like some um, medieval progression or something originally right right and you know my feeling on this whole thing with this is like, okay, it worked out well for you because you made a fortune off of this by stealing these songs and claiming they were yours, but you didn't have to do that necessarily. Why not credit the Why not credit the artist? I mean, yes, obviously you line your pockets, right? But you know, like I said, the Stones don't do that. The Stones will always credit, and that's why the the, the bluesmen who were you know, still alive when the Stones were at their height, the, the guys like Muddy Waters and Howard Wolf and, and you know, B.B. King, all of these guys really respected the Rolling Stones because they did their music authentically and they credited them for it. So they would get their royalties where Zeppelin plagiarized it and they avoided paying those guys their royalties. Is and, it you mostly know, Jimmy Page's doing or? Now, the interesting thing about it is Jimmy says this is all because Robert Plant would sing these vocals over top of what he came up with, right? He would use their lyrics. And the one thing you can, you can copyright in music is the song progression and the lyrics, right? You can, copyright, you can copyright the melody and you can copyright the lyrics. Everything else is sort of like fair game, Right. So how many three chord songs are the same three chord song? But if the lyrics are different, you know, sometimes you get away with that. Sometimes you don't. George Harrison got burned on that with My Sweet Lord. Remember, he was uh, accused of plagiarizing um, She's So Fine. And he lost that. Courts decided he had, he had lifted it and, you know, he owed them some money. But what happened with Zeppelin was they decided they were going to just do it and see what happened. And by the time anyone 
chase them for money, they deal with it then. So it took a long time for people like Willie Dixon to get their money back on those tracks. And I think in later years, as part of the lawsuit, they may have had to credit them on new versions of like, you know, reissues of these albums. By the time they lost the lawsuit, they're still pressing copies of Zeppelin one, right? To this day, they're still pressing copies of it and they may be credited on there now. And Jimmy's, Jimmy's argument was like, I played a song, I played this riff, I, it becomes a blues riff, and it doesn't sound anything really like the original. But then Robert Plant starts putting a vocal on it that's using the lyrics from some other song he's heard, and that gets them in trouble plagiarism-wise. I think that argument goes so far. I think Jimmy's as guilty as anybody. The Burt Janch thing alone, that's an instrumental, okay? He just lifted that. That has nothing to do with Robert Plant. So Jimmy's never been one to really take any responsibility for his shit, and that's one of his weaknesses. You know, we've talked something about his strengths already, but some of his weaknesses has to do with things like owning up to his own bullshit, and he's never he's never been able to do that. He's, he's an incredibly egomaniac character um, who has, you know, He just never wants to be associated with uh, anything that casts him in a bad light. And nobody does, but I mean, when you do things that cast you in a bad light, at a certain point, maybe 40 years later, own up to your shit. And, you know, I don't you know, he's, he has nothing to lose at this point in terms of stature. If he had actually come out and said, yeah, I, I, I did this stuff, I'm not proud of it. I think that would be fine. I don't think it would destroy his reputation or anything, but I don't think his ego can handle it. And this is one of the things that I'm not, you know, as much as I love Jimmy Page, I don't love this aspect of Jimmy Page at all. And my feeling is, is if, if you're going to use someone else's stuff, credit it. And don't rip off other musicians if you can help it. Not this way. I mean, we all borrow from other people, but if you're going to actually play something that was somebody else's composition and you then take credit for it, and then you make a fortune by taking credit for it. I understand why everybody wanted to sue them. Now, they got lucky in the Stairway to Heaven case because, in fact, that, that one didn't hold as much water. There is some similarity to the track that, that the guys in Spirit played in the intro and everything. But it's a common chord progression. And there were, the Zeppelin lawyers were able to come in and say, look, this progression has, last, has been around for thousands of years it's it's a common thing. You can't you can't say you know you you wrote this. They came in and they said they showed examples that predated Spirit of this progression in music. So first they won it, and then the Spirit appealed it. Then they won it again, and I think they went to another appeal. And on the third time, they finally conclusively won that they didn't rip off Stairway to Heaven. And I think in that case, it's true. I don't think they did. But had Jimmy Page heard that track, and maybe subconsciously had that thing stuck in his mind or was it just something that he tripped over himself as a common progression that, that a musician might trip over? We'll never know. And he's never going to admit it either way, but some of the blues stuff and this Burt Jantz track and things like that, that's hard to, to get away from that. It was plagiarism. All right. So let's try and get back on track here. I'm, I'm, I'm off on another tangent here. Uh, and we will come back to a little bit about, uh, Jimmy Page's character and lack thereof at times. But um, 
let's talk about his strengths because we're going to talk about get back on track here with strengths and weaknesses. And the man has, you know, from the artistic side, and the musical side, strength to strength to strength. So many strengths. Um, the biggest and most noteworthy of which is songwriting and arrangement. And it's my opinion that he's at a pure genius level of songwriting and arrangement. Um, now, of course, John Paul Jones was, had some hand in the arrangement, but the kinds of songs that he, that Jimmy Page came up with uh, beyond, you know, simple things like whole lot of love is fairly simple. But if you listen to things like stairway, cashmere, the rain song, Achilles last stand, these songs are just epically big and beautiful. And one of the things that I found as a guitar player was really eye opening to me. Um, sometime in like, I think it was like the late nineties. There was an issue of guitar world that came out back when we all bought magazines and um, it had a transcription for the rain song, the tab for the rain song. And to play the rain song properly, you tune your guitar uh, to a different tuning. It's not standard tuning. Standard tuning for most people who don't know is E, A, D, G, B, E from low to high. But the rain song is in a different tuning. And this is one of the things Jimmy did. He, he liked to mess with different tunings. And it's D, G, C, G, C, D. And if you tune your guitar to that and you get the tablature for the rain song, what you'll find is that beautiful piece of music is not that hard to play in that tuning. And, you know, a, an intermediate level player should be able to get their way through that and play it. And it's just a lesson in like the brilliance of tuning a guitar to that and coming up with that kind of piece of music and still having it being elegantly simple to play. In, you know, in an off tuning that ought to give you a little insight into like the kind of mind that he has musically. Um, it's one thing to just go, but yeah, nice, simple riff, very effective and all. But if you listen to the rain song, if you're not familiar with it, it's glorious. And it's, it's a, it's a slow, it's a Zeppelin ballad, if you will. It's, you know, it's like, the beginning of Stairway to Heaven without the crescendo of Stairway to Heaven. It remains a ballad throughout the entire thing. And it's a glorious piece of music. And when you learn to play it in a different tuning and you realize as you're learning this thing, how cool these parts are to play and how simplistic they are in, in that they're not like, you're not tripping over your fingers too much. Once you understand what he's doing, it's really fairly straightforward. But the way, you know, you would never guess that you'd come up with something like that. Who else is going to come, you know, tune their guitar to that tuning and come up with something that glorious. And to me, that was sort of like, you know, another look at like, I already knew that he was this genius level songwriter, but that was my first sort of like one of those moments where it's like, Holy shit, tune my guitar to this tuning and then play this song and learn how to play it in this tuning. And it just was a big eye opener for like how, impressive some of this stuff really is at the end with the last the last eight bars or whatever it is where it's just the, the guitar it go, it's gotten big and then it's gotten quiet again that that ending part where he goes you know that last bit is so glorious and gorgeous this
how weird is that? A little dark note in there. And then back into this. How do you come up with that? That's the thing, man. If you tune to that tuning, <laughs> that's not that hard to play. And it sounds like it's, you know, if, if you don't know he's in that tuning, you can't figure out what he's doing. If you, you know, because if you, you get to a certain level of guitar playing and if I watch another guitar player, I know what he's doing. Right. I can I can tell exactly what he's doing most of the time. Right. If I can see his hands. Right. But if he's in a different tuning, all bets are off because everything becomes foreign. Right. Yeah. And you watch him play this stuff. And it's like, if you try to play what he's playing in standard tuning, it sounds nothing, nothing sounds right. But if you tune it to that, you realize, again, these parts are not super hard to play. It's just so elegantly simple. That's genius. And is that the tuning that's used in any other song or arrangement that we might know or was it um, something not just... so much that one the one that he's most famous for is one that's called dadgad d-a-d-g-a-d that's the one that that you hear on cashmere um and you hear dadgad and a couple of the other ones too i think he may have done uh black mountainside from from that one and that he got from bert janch i believe but i mean bert janch didn't write cashmere Right. So, I mean, Jimmy still took it and did something different with it, even though he did, you know, everybody takes something from people that they're influenced by. I mean, I, I'm not I, I don't really I'm, I don't have any issue with that. But let me tell you something. I'm, I'm working I, I, on a, a version of Cashmere that my wife sang on. My wife is a really amazing singer who can do that stuff really, really well. And my drummer from my current project and. Um, my bass player for my current project. And it sounds glorious. We're not, we're not anywhere near finished with it. We're just sort of like, we tracked most of it, but we haven't, we haven't had time to mix it. And it's not going on my album or anything like that. It eventually we'll get to it and we'll eventually come out. And when we put it out as cashmere, I'm not going to claim, claim that I wrote it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to, I mean, you know, it's written by Jimmy Page. So I'm not going to say that I wrote it, even though I'm playing it. And even though I'm influenced by it and all that stuff. But anyway, so you have these songs like Stairway to Heaven and In the Light and Ten Years Gone and the song remains the same and Achilles Last Stand and Cashmere. All of these songs are not like your standard rock and roll fare. It's different from what you get from Sabbath. It's different from what you get from The Who. It's different from what you get from Deep Purple or Rush, or, you know, closer to Rush, actually, a lot of it. But but they were hugely influenced by Led Zeppelin. So the songwriting and the arrangement of of Jimmy Page is just stellar. And again, this is, a, you know, a different visionary mind creating music like we really have not heard at that time in other bands. Like a song like The Battle of Evermore, that's another one that when I hear yeah. it, it's like, oh my God, how, how do you come up with that? Yeah, well, we have a cool clip of him playing that in at Headley Grange when he went back to Headley Grange. It's not, it's not, the, the fact is it's not super complicated once you have the key to the map, you know? Right. Once you know what he's doing, and we'll talk a little bit about that in his guitar style because there, that, that thread does run through his guitar style. 
But anyway, we're talking about songwriting arrangements. Then there's the classic riff songs. He's a riff god, just like Iomi and like Blackmore, okay, of equal stature to those guys. Obviously, Whole Lot of Love is probably the most famous riff he ever wrote. Um, but there's also like the punkish energy of communication breakdown. And by the way, bands like the Ramones and other punk bands who don't particularly like classic rock in, in that sense, they all loved communication breakdown because it was this very punky, it was you know very much a punkish sort of riff yeah. at a time when, you know, punk, punk was just a glean in dad's eyes at that moment. Right. <laughs> you know, and you had, you had Pete Townsend, who's really the father of punk, but a lot of the guys in like the Ramones would point to communication breakdown. And I think the sex pistol too, they would, they point to that as like, you know, we liked the Zeppelins when it was like communication breakdown. By the time they get to things like stairway to heaven, it's overblown. And, you know, that's what yeah. the punks would say. But, but that was like, you know, one of those proto punk moments too. Oh, things and then like, you have, uh... Yeah. Yeah, things like Moby Dick. Or, uh... Yeah, which is just a simple, you know, launch-off point for Bonham. But uh, but then you have like the pure balls of Black Dog. Yeah. Right. And that's a that's a you know for what it's worth that's a John Paul Jones. The main lick is a John Paul Jones lick. Really. Yeah. Uh, but I think a lot of what Jimmy brought to it was like the ba da ba 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 da ba 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 da ba I think that comes from Jimmy Page but the ba da 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 that's John Paul Jones work I remember learning it on guitar and then realizing hey that's just within the standard blues structure and I was like wow within that structure how do you that's so genius and simple but so great like just what you said before yeah it's simple but to get it to sound right and get a whole band to play it my old, my old band used to play it with my wife singing it, and it was we did a great job with it, and we actually recorded it. And it's, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of in my own recordings was doing a great Zeppelin cover and getting it recorded because doing that song, it was so near and dear to me, and because I was able to produce it myself and re- recreate some of what Jimmy Page did sonically in the studio on that track was so rewarding for me that like when I was done with it and it came out good, the 17 year old Zeppelin fan in me was just like, so pleased (laughs) the 17 year old that's still inside of me that still loves Led Zeppelin. Um, it was just really pleased with that. It was, it was a different level of satisfaction than like recording your own song, your own songs. When you, when they come out great, it's, it's very rewarding, but to be able to go in and like pay tribute to a song that that's that kind of classic to be able to pull it off. Well, so you don't sound like a train wreck and then to be able to, you know, record it and pay homage to the production side of Jimmy page was very important to me to capture some of those elements that are in that, you know, it was just a very satisfying thing to do that. But then, you know, know, the other, the other riff songs that come to mind are things like the wanton song, really ballsy riff. Then you have a lot of swagger and things like for your life and custard pie, great riffs, great riffs. And then, you get when the levee breaks, four sticks, you know, all of these riff based songs that are as important as anything you got from Blackmore and Iomi. Now, Iomi's done more of them than everybody else because he's been at it longer. But I mean, Jimmy Page is of the same stature as a riff god as those other guys. And then, of course, we talked a bit about the vision and the innovation and. 
the other side, the other side that I have always felt doesn't get talked enough about about Jimmy Page is the producer side, and to me, that's because I am a producer myself, and I've learned a shitload from listening to Jimmy Page, and I've learned a shitload from you know listening to his music and how to do how things he achieved in the studio. It's like how do I do that? How do you, how did he do that? How do I want to do this? Do, what can I take away from this side? And he's not the only influential producer. I've, I've you know I've, I've, I like a lot of guys as producers, but Jimmy Page was really is is as good as anyone you ever want to talk about in the side of, of music production. And I don't think he gets enough credit for it. He's as strong as anybody ever was and as innovative as anyone ever was. And yes, he, he, you know, he took things from other people who were there when he was, you know, he learned this stuff by being in the studio as a young man, how to get the sounds he wanted to get and all of that stuff. But, um, you know, some of the stuff that, he learned about like how to get those drum sounds we were talking about that came from, you know, realizing that what he was hearing in the studios, the studio guys weren't getting it. And he knew that the way to get that he either heard it, you know, on a session where someone actually did it in a way that, that did make a difference, or he just sort of figured it out that it was like, you know, if we keep the drums here and they're all walled off and you can't hear them breathe, they're going to sound terrible. But one of the things he claims to have um, created, and I think he's right in this one, and I think he did create it, is Backwards Echo, where you, where you, in those days on tape, you would print Echo to tape. You'd be, you know, whatever it is, like, in A Whole Lot of Love, you know, they would put some Echo or, you know, some kind of Echo on the recording, flip the tapes over, and run them backwards, and re-record it with the echo coming in backwards. And you hear that in a whole lot of love. That was something he claims he invented. And I I haven't been able to see where that's one thing that, you know, I think I think that claim stands up. That's during the psychedelic section in the middle. Yeah. But it, I think he uses it elsewhere too in the catalog. So backwards echo is something he claims he he created when he was doing the Yardbirds track, 10 Little Indians, and um, and it does appear in other Zeppelin tracks like You Shook Me and Whole Lot of Love and things like that. Um, the other thing, we've already talked about how instrumental he was in making drums sound big. Epically important in that respect to, to modern recording. The reason drums sound good these days is because Jimmy Page showed us the way. Um, now there's a, like a lot of different ways to do that. Now he was doing it with, like I said, capturing the sound of the room. Later on, people would use plate reverbs or digital reverbs as we got further and further into reverb. Very few people will still do it the old school way that Jimmy did it because you don't have to anymore. And it's a lot easier and a lot more expedient if you just use, um, you know, a reverb effect instead of trying to capture the room sound. You, you, the more microphones you put up in the room, the more chance you have to run into phasing issues between microphones and things like that. So there are there are better ways to do this now. But at the time, he phasing, did it that way. Phasing is when like a sound doesn't reach every microphone at the same time. Right? No, it's when no, it's it's because when when the sounds don't reach each other at the same time, one microphone might cancel out another microphone oh. in the frequency range. Or something. So you get this thing that sounds thin and, and, and wrong. And basically what you do, you have to flip the phasing on one. It's like, you know, 
it's like turning over your plug to change the polarity or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a it's an issue where one is out of phase with the other, and it that causes a cancellation effect. So you get this this sound that is generally not desirable. You have two frequencies that are canceling each other out because one's like positive and one's negative. Okay. And instead of in, if they're if they're in phase, you get the full sound, and if they're out of phase, you get some small chunk of the sound and everything else is sort of hard to hear so it's a problem when you use a lot of microphones like on a guitar cab for example you know so if you want to have a close mic on the guitar cab and you want to have another mic in the corner and another mic in the ceiling all three of those mics working at the same time you 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 may find you have phasing issues and it's certainly true you're going to use a lot of drum mics right so Again, in those days, in, especially before they got you know into the into the mid seventies, where you had twenty four track machines, they didn't have that many microphones to play with, and you you have to do it with as as few as you could get away with, and then b- bounce your shit down to like you know the Beatles albums were recorded a lot of them on four track, and they would hook up two four track machines to try and get eight track and sync them up and stuff. So those kinds of things were happening, but. Jimmy played with those kinds of things. He played with putting things in and out of phase in terms of, you know, using that, that, that undesirable thing as an effect. Sometimes it can, it can be an effect that you use for a certain, you know, mood or something like that. But then he would do things like he'd put phase shifter on the drums, like in cashmere, where you hear when, when John Bonham's doing a roll on the snare drum, you hear the phase shifter going whoosh over top of it. You know, that hadn't been done. He put guitar through Leslie speakers. A Leslie speaker is a, is a rotating speaker that was made for a Hammond organ. And you get this sound that sort of, it gets almost a, a fast chorus effect because the speaker is twirling around in this big cabinet. And you can hear that on um, the solo on Good Times, Bad Times and the solo on Wanton Song. And it almost makes the guitar sound like a keyboard in some ways. Wow. If you're playing like a like a like a unison band or a chord, it can it can make the sound, you know, just different in a way that like you know who thought to put a guitar through that? Well, Jimmy Page thought to put a guitar through that. Who thought to put a guitar phase shifter on a drum kit? Jimmy did. So there's a lot of things that he did do in the studio that became common studio practice afterwards, and people still use some of these techniques to this day, especially if you're interested in making that kind of music. The kinds of classic rock statements and staples and things like that. I've done those things on track. I've put phase shifter on the snare drum and I learned how to do that from Jimmy and weird things that would go on. Like the guitar sound on black dog is not him through a guitar amp. It's him playing through two compressors in that have been hooked up together. So the first, so his signal goes into this 1176 compressor crushes the hell out of it and compresses it and then sends it to the next 1176 compressor. And they take, you know, they take the feed out of that and you record it and you get this sound and he did double it and all. And he, I think he tripled it too, but it's like, you think that's an amp. It's not an amp. It's a, it's a compressor. It's a compressor being used as an amp or two compressors being used in it as an amp. And I don't know why they did that. That was Andy John's engineering um, at that time. And you know, I read about that and using that, that sort of weird sort of scenario to create a guitar tone. I don't know why he did it, but he did it on that track and it sounds great. And for whatever reason, it worked in that context. And um, years later, when I, like I said, when I went to record 
our version of Black Dog, I tried to get that. I tried to see what would happen if I put my guitar through two 1176s and, and see if I could get that sound. And lo and behold, I got that sound. And I had this big shitting and grin on my face because like, there it is. That's the Black Dog guitar sound coming right out of my studio monitors. I couldn't believe it. Through a Les Paul, through this thing, set it the way they had said, set it. And there it was. You dial it up. And this is on like, you know, plugins, not real hardware. You're doing this through like, you know, modern digital plugins of an 1176. And yet when you do it, that sound came out. And I, I ended up using that sound in my center guitar track and I tracked an amp on the left and the right of it. So they beefed it up a bit, but you can hear that, that center guitar sound in my, in my cover of this song. And it sounds like the black dog guitar sound. And people were like, Dave, how'd you do that? And I'm like, I just did what he did. Yeah. I just, I just figured out how he did it and redid it. And I used it and I, you know, and I, like I said, I added to it, but I left enough of that sound in there that it sounded so authentic. It does have a, it, it's a unique guitar sound. Yeah, yeah. And it's because he's not using his marshals. Maybe he didn't just have them in the studio that day and they just, they jury rigged something together. I don't know why they did it, but they did it. And they, and to my knowledge, they didn't do it on other tracks, but I did. They, it's on Black Dog. So a lot of innovation, a lot of things that were just coming out of his own imagination and creativity. And then I guess uh, the other thing we should talk about is his acoustic guitar work, which was also terrific and came in many different flavors. So many great examples. Um, we start with the the second half of Led Zeppelin three. Right. Um, and when you talk about acoustic Zeppelin, you're talking about acoustic guitar, but you're also typically talking about these other things that Jimmy would play or John Paul Jones would occasionally play for him, or they do it, you know, together live. This all, you know, the mandolin, we talked about the battle of evermore, right? That's mandolin, right? done three albums that were recorded in the studio and this was this was another approach things like um, Gallows Pole.
pedal steel on tangerine. And a different kinds of instruments, these stringed instruments that Jimmy would have go on. He's not that, it's not that he was a master at any one of these things, but he would go and pull out a pedal steel guitar for a certain part on a song. And he'd get, you know, or he'd pull out a banjo or he'd, you know, get a mandolin or whatever. And again, those kinds of things that created this this different sonic texture for Led Zeppelin that gave them this differentiation from Sabbath and Purple and everybody else, you've got all of these acoustic instruments working together and you have songs like, you know, Friends and Braniore and Gallows Pole and, you know, again, Black Mountainside and, and stuff like that. Some of them in the non-standard tunings that we've talked about. And again, extremely influential on other people, extremely influential on me. I know that I have taken an awful lot of how Jimmy recorded acoustic instruments and used them as, again, sort of different flavors in the sonic canvas of, of what your track could be. Um, I, I love recording acoustics. I have, I have done, you know, the blending of acoustic guitar with electric guitar on things like over the hills and far away. If you listen to that, as a mix, what you will hear is there's acoustic six string, there's acoustic 12 string, and then there's the electric and they blend and he blends it all together. And you get, you know, this sonic difference that if he had played the whole thing on electric, it wouldn't sound anywhere near as rich. That has a lot of dimension to it. There's right? a certain depth to yeah. through uh, acoustic guitar, and especially a twelve-string has like this unique this shiny sparkle yeah. on top, right? Yeah. And and if you if you blend that with electric guitar, well, it's magic. It's, it was magic when the Stones did it too. But I mean, that's just a win. And well, people, which track you know, did Stones do it? Over the hills and far away is a good example because you know it's Stones. You, you, oh, on the Stones, yeah. Oh, uh, the Stones do it on Wild Horses, on Angie, on, you know, especially Wild Horses. Angie, I think, stays mostly acoustic, but uh, things like Wild Horses, you're going to hear in that mix. That's a glorious mix. Um, you hear acoustic 12-string, acoustic 6-string, and electric. Okay. And it, that's, an, an, you know, that's Jimmy Miller. That's another wonderful producer. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that... I've taken away from people like Jimmy Miller and Jimmy Page of how to how to make my tracks sound more lush and dynamic by tracking acoustic guitar with my electric guitar and blending it in in some way. I had pulled out a mandolin and learned how to play um, Battle of Evermore. And then I wrote a mandolin part for a song that I, had, you know, just, just a quick little turnaround in the song. I threw a mandolin over it. I don't know how to play mandolin. I just figured out how to play mandolin enough to play the one part. And it adds this sonic thing to the track that wasn't there before. And it's like, it's magic. And he was the you first know, one he, to kind of do that. 
Um, I think in in such a in such a grand way, in such a grand. I mean, you know, you have a guy like Brian Jones in the Rolling Stones was another one of these musicians. You could hand him any instrument and he could play it, whether it's a dulcimer or a xylophone or a sitar or something like that. And the you know the Stones of the nineteen sixties sonically is characterized by Brian Jones adding these these wonderful different sounds to these tracks, whether it's sitar on Painted Black or you know xylophone on under my thumb and things like that you know a lot of these harpsichord on lady jane right brian jones could play anything and the stones of the 70s became a much more just guitar oriented band guitars horns and, and piano but in the 60s when they were really more experimental and more you know trying these these beatlesque ideas of trying to like throw funky things in you know brian jones was a huge part of the sound even though he was a no part of the writing but you know if you don't have brian jones in the 60s the stone 60s stuff doesn't have all of those interesting flavors jimmy page he's doing it all a lot by himself and then they would get on stage and and of course John Paul Jones could play these instruments too. So they'd get on stage and play going to California and one of them would play the guitar. Jimmy would play the guitar and John Paul Jones would play the mandolin or whatever. And, you know, it would sound glorious. And again, it, it, this goes back to vision and being able to say, I want to have this canvas filled with 64 colors rather than eight colors. Right. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to use, you know, he was not so much a sitar, but I mean, he would use, like I said, all of these different instruments just to add different flavors to each song. And that's huge as well. Also, John Paul Jones used uh, some cool instruments on like Trampled Underfoot. He used a clavinet, which is like yeah. the same piano that's used on or piano type instrument that's used on Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. He's Stevie Wonder yeah. made the clav famous. Yeah. That's superstitious and, and stuff like that. You know, that's the clav sound. He also used Mellotron. Mellotron was an early uh, pre-synthesizer attempt to make a keyboard that would do symphonic sounds like strings and stuff. Mellotron. Yeah. You hear that on No Quarter. Paul McCartney's got one, and he, he does a wonderful video with that. It was a really complicated device with tape loops. They were doing it with tape loops, so you have like a like a piano keyboard, right? But inside the box, inside the machine, it's 20 inches of, of, a, of a tape loop that's got strings on it, right? Wow. So you could you could you could get these pseudo string sounds at a time. Now you can just pull up a synthesizer on any MIDI keyboard and do that. But in those days they didn't have that. So there was this thing called the Mellotron, and you know that became you hear the Mellotron on um, No Quarter. I mean that's the you know the Mellotron song. I mean not that they didn't use it before. But that's the, that's the main Mellotron song for for Zeppelin anyway. Um, Incredible song too. Yeah, yeah, and that's a John Paul Jones thing as well. I mean, a lot of that song is John Paul Jones as, you know, 
as we all learned in uh, Song of the Sun. The the um, guitar riff in it is like da 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 da. That, that's that's awesome. Yeah, and in the live version in '73. Uh, while you're watching the John Paul Jones music video version of during that song. Underneath that, Jimmy Page rips this incredible wah-wah solo on the live version from Song Remains the Same. And, you know, if you if you go back and you, you know, if you're watching the video, you may not be like, if you, if you close your eyes and don't watch the video and just listen to the guitar solo there, he's ripping. And it's not on, it's it's like, he doesn't do that on the album version. This was just like an extended thing where he just took off and, and with this really rude wah sound, like a cocked wah thing. And that just ripped. And then, you know, the other thing is he's known for absolutely great guitar solos. some respects i understand why that's being said we can talk about that a little in his guitar style but the point of the matter is he really whether you think it was sloppy or not all of these solos are memorable you know all of these classic zeppelin songs whether it's whole lot of love or rock and roll or stairway to heaven possibly the greatest guitar solo ever recorded by most you know a lot of people consider it that not the most not the most complicated one but possibly the most impactful one and but plenty of other great ones too. The solo in Achilles' Last Stand is brilliant. The solo in um, Since I've Been Loving You is one of the most emotional rock blues solos ever recorded. And um, then you have like Heartbreaker, which was on Zeppelin too, which is like in the middle of the song he just stops and rips out a freestyle guitar solo. How badass is that? And how how you know in the pre-eruption days, right? How, how often do you hear a guy just stop in the middle of the song and just take, you know, a minute and do a freestyle guitar solo? And you can say, yeah, it's it's got some mistakes in it and some clams in it and stuff. But what a guitar hero moment. solo break, he takes another solo that's even better. Mm -hmm. 
have things that also have like these moody attitudes, like the solo in what is and what should never be, which is just really slow and sort of like drowsy, but really effective. And he does that on a slide and it's got this really, uh, interesting attitude to it. It's not a ripping solo. It's just, it's just pure melody and attitude. But, you know, I can sit here and hum it to you because it's, it's unforgettable. And, you know, solo on Tangerine. And so most of Jimmy Page's guitar solos, whether you think he's a sloppy player or not, are super memorable and super melodic and super famous. And, you know, can't take that away from him. And then the other thing is there's usually a rock blues track on every uh, Zeppelin album, one way or another, something that's in a blues format. I mean, they were you know, heavily blues rock influenced, but I mean, whether it's something like a one, four, five progression, like you shook me or um, I can't quit you, babe, which is pretty much a straight up one, four, five. Those were, you know, like I said, sort of blues standards from the blues men. There's that on the first album. And then you have things like the Lemon Song on the second album. And then you have on the third album, you have probably his best, which is Since I've Been Loving You, which where he breaks away from one, four, five blues and plays a different kind of blues progression. And it's spectacular. And the recorded solo on that, on, on Zeppelin three is one of his best solos. And then live uh, in the, you know, in the day, it's one of the classic videos on YouTube that, that they do let, you know, Zeppelin does let people see since I've been loving you as one of the ones that they don't tend to copyright kill you on. So if you watch the live version of since I've been loving you on YouTube, you'll see how wonderful his lead playing was and how, how interesting those solos were because he would, you know, instead of just, he's mostly a pentatonic player, and stays in the blue scale and in the in the minor pentatonic, but on something like that, it allows him to go into harmonic minor and places as well. So you get some different flavors that are beyond your typical blues flavors. The other thing that I want to call out is attitude and emotion. Jimmy's playing and everything about Led Zeppelin was absolutely drenched in sex and going straight for the crotch. It really is the birth of what we now know as cock rock and, you know, that kind of genre within the heavy rock genre. You know, you can have heavy rock and it isn't that sexual, but you can have heavy rock that is that sexual and launch bands like Whitesnake and careers like Coverdale's and careers like John Sykes, who is like probably in some ways the, the, the perfect descendant of cock rock that started in Zeppelin. Um, but, you know, and Plant was a big part of this too. But for Jimmy's part, his electric guitars and his stage demeanor were filled with a swagger and confidence and bravado. And it was just really amazing. He'd, you know, he'd take off on a half hour journey in the middle of Dazed and Confused and jam away. He didn't care if he was sloppy and didn't care where it was going. He knew he could, he could pull it off. His balls were gigantic. <laughs> I mean, they really were. I mean, he had he had this cockiness at that time where he could really he, he thought he could do anything with that guitar on stage. And for the most part, he could certainly do anything he wanted to do. And 
there was all of this ballsiness, but there was also this breathtaking subtlety as well. But his leads were always very tasty and very melodic and very emotional. So you get this attitude in his playing, but you never lose the emotional side. You have this swagger and then you have this this delicacy, right? Where it's like one minute I'm the biggest dick in the world and I can play anything. And the next minute he's playing something very tender and very quiet. So you have this attitude and you have the emotional aspect of it. So there's and that's, again the light and shade aspect of it coming back there too. Yeah, but I mean sometimes it's it's just like he, he understood that like – Again, if you listen to like we play like a snippet of the solo of what is and what should never be, it's it's there's really nothing to it, but it's just so right. It's just so perfect. It's it's just this really lazy thing where it's just it's just it's pure attitude. And it doesn't have anything technically challenging, it doesn't have anything that's hard to play or anything like that. It's just a very simple set of phrases but it's just played with this attitude that's absolutely perfect for the mood of the song and he's not overplaying he's not overdoing it and he never does that but he he just he just knew how to be tasty and when to when to go for it when to lay back when to be bombastic when to be gentle taste we're talking about someone who has taste We're going to get into the part where you just mentioned mystique and influence. And that has just been huge, a huge part of what he was about. And he, he's been also super influential in terms of like guitar style and guitar playing right. style. Like I was a Guns N' Roses fan before I was a big Led Zeppelin fan. Because right. like when, when I started listening to rock music, Guns yeah. N' Roses happened to reach me first, you know? Sure. And... When I listen to Slash's playing, there's a lot of Jimmy Page in there. And the same goes for the guy from Aerosmith. What's his name again? Yep. Um, They're all the sons of Jimmy Page. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that we're t- this is a little bit about the influence. I want to talk a little bit about the mystique. Yeah. Because I'm old enough to have lived through some of the Zeppelin years. I was too young to see them live at in the day. I was hoping to see them on the tour where Bonham died, but I didn't get to see them then. But I certainly lived through the Zeppelin years in my youth enough to know that if you lived through that, if you didn't live through that, you can't really appreciate fully Jimmy Page's mystique at that time. Again, we talked about them being at, at, you know, at odds with the press. So they weren't around. And one way to create mystique is not be available. All right. The less available you are, the more people are curious, especially if you're successful and your albums are selling a zillion people. No one ever sees you. There's a mystique. This is like 
Kiss without the makeup, right? Right. Kiss created Mystique, and people always wondered what they looked like without their makeup. And in their prime, Led Zeppelin were not available for interviews. They were not available, not much anyway, not available for press. And so they were creating this, this humongous impact in the rock world, both live and on recordings, but you couldn't get access to them. You didn't know who they were. You didn't know what they were. You didn't know what they were about other than through their music. And this was also by design by Jay, because he always wanted everybody to just pay attention to the music. That's all that matters, right? So yeah, I remember back when I started the site and young players would sort of rag on Jimmy for being not that impressive or whatever, you know, a sloppy playing and, and all of that. And those people didn't experience Jimmy Page in his own time. Yeah. So you had to live through at least some of the Zeppelin years to fully appreciate Jimmy's mystique. And like I said, when I started the site, there were young players who didn't get why he is so revered because they'd, they'd grown up on Van Halen or people who are more technical or something like that. And they listen to Jimmy Page and they hear him being comparatively sloppy in places like that. And they don't understand that in the seventies, Jimmy had an absolutely magical aura about him. And if you were young and impressionable and not yet a guitar player, Jimmy was totally larger than life. And in a time before synthesizers, where synthesizers would create a bunch of different sounds that you'd never heard before, you could go to a Led Zeppelin concert or you could go see Song Remains the Same and watch Jimmy Page make sounds with his guitar and a violin bow and an echoplex and theremin that you'd never heard before. And it was there was sounds like... What's, Sounds you did not expect in your mind that could come out of a guitar were coming out of this man's guitar. What's and a, they were not sounds you'd, you'd heard before. So, What's a theremin or an echoplex? So an echoplex is just an echo device that will g give you sort of a, a bunch of repeats on whatever you play. Okay. Uh, it was a tape echo back in the day before we had digital delays and stuff like that. You had tape echo, which was a little box with a little tape loop in it and you know you put your guitar sound through that and you'd get echo because it would swirl back around and you get what you you know what you played the last time and all that it's, it's a wonderful little device that still sounds great they're they're temperamental and all but if you set this thing you could make a lot of noise with it in some ways you could beat the crap out of the echoplex and make it sound all wishy and have all of these weird effects come out of it and it was just like you could use it as a, in a way that was never intended to be used and just make it do all of these weird sounds that were not hadn't been heard really and then he had this theremin thing. A theremin is a weird device. It's it's hard to describe what it is. It's something that creates a little electric field. The best way to look this up is to is to look on YouTube and see what a theremin is. And we'll show you a clip of what he sounded like doing this and show you what he looked like doing this. And when you're 13, 14 years old and you've never seen anything like this and never heard anything like this, he's coaxing all of these sounds out of like, gear and you've never heard anything like it and he, it, he's literally looking like Merlin the Magician up there the way he's dressed in, in his stage attire which he had like some of the coolest clothes that anyone ever wear, wore on stage the dragon suit which is the most famous <laughs>
exhibit recently at uh, the Met. Uh, this they had this great exhibit of like all this guitar stuff at the Met, and Jimmy Page donated a, a boatload of his gear and his stage clothes and stuff. And then, of course, in the book that he put out recently called the Jimmy Page Anthology. He shows you in like glorious coffee co- coffee table book format in on glorious, you know, paper stock with like wonderful photography. He's showing you pictures of all of the stage gear he wore in the Zeppelin days and all and the Yardbirds days. Like, like I said, he kept everything. So he had like he had this this dragon suit, which is black velvet with this this embroidered dragon all the way up the suit. Then he had this other thing that was like stars and planets all over it with his with his uh, astrological signs on the legs and stuff. He looked mystique and you know ma- majesty and mystique. He just dripped of it because he you know no one else dressed like this on stage, and he had this this really magical aura about him and by the way that's just the onstage part of it he had that aura about him offstage too and the book that we read talks a little bit about this um he was very much into the occult which only added to his mystique uh he was into alistair crowley in a major way um yeah, a lot of musicians were yeah but i mean not all of them bought crowley's house yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and opened El- up Elisha- and opened up a bookstore that was specifically to sort of like acquire and then you know resell Crowley manuscripts and stuff. But tell me a little bit about this Crowley character because he he seems to have a, quite a big influence on multiple musicians from that time for some reason. Yeah, I mean he was. Um, I guess I don't know what you'd call him necessarily a Satanist or anything, but he was. I mean, I guess these days you might call him like. Uh, an uber libertarian or something like that, where it was like, uh, "Do what thou wilt should be the war, you know the the rule of the law," or I think is is the quote, you know, "Do whatever you want," is basically the Crowley thing. And boy, did Jimmy Page really <laughs> grab a hold of that idea. Uh, and for better or worse, that was again Crowley was a guy who. I guess lived in the 1800s. You can look up Aleister Crowley and all of the stuff about him uh, easily as anyone can on Google. And um, he was a guy who was sort of a rock star of his own day in the writer sense. Uh, he was a guy who got into heroin and he got hooked on heroin and he had his demons as well. He's uh, a guy who's definitely associated with the occult. And like you said, he was appealing to a lot of people, even just, you know, just from a curiosity standpoint. But I think Jimmy Page certainly took it a little bit beyond just a, a, a curiosity. He he was deep into Crowley. Um, it was just a fascination for him by all accounts. Um, but it, what happened was when you at that time, when you were into something like that and you had this mystique about you anyway, and you have a band that's wildly successful beyond anything else that's going on right now, and people start thinking maybe they sold their soul to the devil for all of this success, and you know he has this dark uh, image about him, and uh, the book the talks about how people like David Bowie would, were totally freaked out by Jimmy Page. He was you know? terrified of him. Yeah, absolutely terrified. And, 
you know, that team, you know, Bowie was on a shitload of drugs too and was, you know, super paranoid too. And the, you know, on the kind of drugs like cocaine that make you very paranoid. So, I mean, it, you know, it all feeds into each itself, but and it was interesting to read in this book. And again, I will reference this book. It's called um, Jimmy Page, the definitive biography by Chris Salish. And you'll see it in other books too, but this is the one we were talking about where, the people who, you know, it's not just that, okay, the fans out in the audience have never seen anything like this and he's this dark, mysterious character. People who knew Jimmy Page felt that he had this palpable, dark energy around him. And people like David Bowie, who knew him, were totally freaked out by him. And people th said he had this dark energy and he was, they, there was this ominous quality to him. And some of that was cultivated by him. Clearly, he cultivated it, and I'm sure he didn't mind having this, you know, this image. But part of it was just this association with the occult, this association with creating this mystique. And that comes through in a lot of places. So, you know, he'd be out there decked out in his dragon suit or with the suit with the stars and the planets, and he'd... he'd pull a violin bow out and start straight scraping across the guitar strings, making these sounds that were eerie and they would do it under a laser and shit. And it was like really with fog machines and stuff. It was, you know, it could be creepy. And then he would sit there and he would do this stuff that just made him look magical. And this is beyond all the guitar work. This is just like stagecraft. This is just showmanship. And it made him have this, uh, larger than life mystique that if you weren't living through it in the seventies, it's hard to convey how powerful that may have been to, you know, a generation of my, my age. There's also stories of, uh, when he was doing the soundtrack for this movie, Lucifer rising, right? Kenneth anger. Yeah. And that guy, he was also into the occult stuff and then they, uh, he, he would like put a curse on or a hex on, uh, on Jimmy and, and, you know, he... Well, that was because Jimmy took the job and then he got too too involved in drugs to really finish the job, to yeah. be honest. I mean, that's what I gleaned out of that story. He he wanted to do the work and then he just, you know, was too in his own heroin addiction to actually finish the work. And his priority was always going to be Zeppelin. So he was able to still function in Led Zeppelin to an extent during the heroin years. But, I mean, things like the Anger Project never happened and, you know... and. Kenneth Anger got very angry and, <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah, he, he, but there was you know, also but, the whole but, thing like two magicians should never meet or something. That was another thing that kept coming back in that, uh, biography because yeah, well, man, anger was, anger was just as bitch, much of a loony as anybody else at that time. <laughs> I mean, he, he was, he was his own bizarre character as well. I think he finished that movie like 40 years after he started yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Have and, you and seen think, it? No, but I, I know Jimmy put out the soundtrack eventually. Yeah, he also did the soundtrack of Death Wish too. Right, he did. And that was very interesting, um, but we'll get into that in the discography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway... So Jimmy had this, this magical aura on stage... On all of the stuff that I was talking about, there's just showmanship and badassery and attitude and cockiness and all of that. But he was also playing his ass off 
at a time where, you know, whatever you want to say about his playing now compared to like the bar has been raised by the 80s school of guitar where people were cleaner and faster in his day. Jimmy was as fast as anybody. Jimmy was as flashy as anybody. He was better than most of the horrible uh, American hard rock players uh, other than the guys like the guys in Aerosmith. Uh, but, you know, all of the corporate rock stuff that was out in, in those days. Uh, What's an example know, of like that? I, I don't want to say it, but like just like in terms of like the faceless early 70s American rock, like Bachman Turner Overdrive and stuff like that. You know, those kinds of things compared to those guys. Jimmy Page was absolutely on another level guitar wise. Right. You know, and so he had this, this incredible impact. And so for a lot of us at a certain age, Jimmy page was the guitar God. And he wasn't just that his guitar style influenced our guitar style, which it did, but he influenced our lives in a way that other players didn't. For example, I started out on bass guitar. I probably, and, and if I look back on it, I think I switched to guitar because of Jimmy page. Uh, and a little bit of Pete Townsend, but legions of us picked up a guitar for the first time because of Jimmy Page, because just, because what he was doing on stage just looked so damn cool and sounded so damn good. You said, "I want to be, I want to do that. I want a part of that." And we grew our our hair long because of Jimmy Page. We wanted Les Pauls because of Jimmy Page, and when we got them, we wore them too low because of Jimmy Page. You wear them around your, you know, around your, your balls instead of playing them up where you need to be playing. <laughs> Jimmy Page wears this guitar so impossibly low in those days. It was just you, you marvel at how he's able to even play as well as he did because if you ever try to play a Les Paul slung that low, there's parts of that neck that's really hard to reach. If you watch a guy like the only guy who still does that is Zach Wild. And if you watch Zach, he wears, he wears the thing really low. And then what happens is when he has to play anything technical, he puts his foot up on the monitor and sticks the guitar on his knee because you can't play it technically well down that low. Right. right. Not, not really super proficiently. And Zach Wilde is, of course, a fantastic example of also a super ballsy player. He's another son of Jimmy Page. Much of what Zach Wilde does is directly from Jimmy Page and, you know, his other influence as well. But we're talking about the mystique and we're talking about the influence. And like I said, a whole generation of us picked up a guitar because of Jimmy Page. And then you talk about the guys who are directly influenced by the Jimmy Page stuff, like Zach Wilde, like Joe Perry, like Slash, right? Not that they don't have other influences too. Michael Schenker. Right. A guy who doesn't sound a lot like Jimmy Page. But when you look at it, what he's playing, a lot of that stuff is Jimmy Page licks played at a much higher level of proficiency. And doing very Jimmy Page like ideas. And the other side of this on the guitar side of this is like when you say, you know, Chuck Berry licks, people know what you mean by Chuck Berry licks most of the time. How 50s licks, 1950s licks on guitar, most of them come from Chuck Berry. Right. Most of the licks of the 70s that became stock rock licks in the 70s come from Jimmy Page. If you listen to Led Zeppelin 1 and Led Zeppelin 2 particularly, there is a bunch of guitar licks on those albums that most rock players have in their arsenal. 
Okay. There, there are certain kinds of licks that are now stock hard rock licks. They feature techniques like hammer-ons and pull-offs, which is where you're not necessarily picking every note, but you're letting your your left hand, your fretting hand fingers do some of this work for you to play fast, flashy licks. And those licks, whether they be, you hear them, like I said, in these guys like Shanker, you hear them in Zach Wilde, you hear it in Joe Perry, you hear it in the guys in Thin Lizzy, uh, Brian Robertson and, and Scott Gorham. All of these guys are playing these licks that came from Jimmy Page and you know, that level of influence on lead work too. And on some tracks, you also hear double guitars, like double tracked guitars, two guitars playing the same. More than two. A lot of the time. Um, the other thing we, you know, back when we talked about the production, he was very, in, what he liked to call, he created what he liked to call a guitar army hmm. where you have loads and loads of guitar tracks to make, make up this, massive sound and a great example of that is something like Achilles Last Stand where you have tons of guitar tracks in that thing and In the Light also you had towards the end of In the Light you get like you know four or five different guitar tracks coming in and 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 making up this this wall of sound that and then like we said general is just just very impressive yeah there's nothing small here yeah everything about Zeppelin is big It can sometimes be intimate, but it's never small. No. It's always big. One of my friends who I hang out with, sometimes I put on Zeppelin too when I'm hanging out there. And and uh, he's told me like, yeah, I put on some albums lately and listened to pretty much all of it in a couple of days. And uh, yeah, that's some serious music. It's no joke. And that's a thing that really sums it up. That it's serious yeah, stuff. It's timeless. Yeah, it's really timeless. I mean, you could say it sounds dated now or whatever you want, but I mean, the, it, it, the songs still work. Yeah, Every, everything there still works. I don't think every song ever done by Led Zeppelin is is like there. There are some clunkers, I think, but very few. But there are a few yeah. clunkers in the Zeppelin catalog and some outtakes and stuff like that. But for the most part, the catalog stands up to this day and, yeah. and still uh, is is as good as or better than most everything else. If you're into if you're into heavy rock, certainly. Yeah, I agree with that. So his influence is is monumental on, on on multiple levels. He also became one of the iconic images of a lead guitar player, right? What did, what should a lead guitar player look like after you know? So you could contend that almost all rock badass style goes back to Keith Richards because Keith Richards is a style icon in terms of what he wore and how he wore it and all of the things, you know, that he, he, he started and, you know, Keith was really that the icon of the badass guitar player, right? That starts with Keith, but the next guy is Jimmy and Jimmy becomes the badass lead player as opposed to just the badass guitar player. So this is where you get the image of the guy with the guitar slung way low and the long curly hair. Hello, Slash. Yeah. <laughs> and Slash wouldn't look like what Slash looks like if there hadn't been a Jimmy Page. Yeah, he's sort of, so, a, yeah, almost a, well, to call it's it the a template. copy is, would be an insult, but 
it's definitely you can definitely see where it's coming from. Yeah, and this is you know this is a part of influence. There's musical influence, there's production influence, there's style influence, and there's image influence. So all of this is coming off of Jimmy Page in Gobs. Yeah. All right. It's it's so multifaceted. There's a clip of Alec Baldwin, who's older than me, talking about Zeppelin in one of the, you know, one of VH1's things where they're talking about the greatest bands of all times. And, and he was like waxing more about it than even I do. He's like, Jimmy Page, are you kidding? You'd cut off your hand to meet Jimmy Page in those days. And so if you're a musician, if you are not a guitar player and you picked up a guitar because of Jimmy, if you are a guitar player and you're learning his licks, that's an influence. If you base your image on him, that's an influence. If you base your production of your own music on what he did, that's an influence. If you pull out a mandolin, that's an influence. All of this stuff, the scope of his impact is on, on hard rock is just immeasurable. And it goes beyond, for example, the impact of a Richie Blackmore and a Tony Iommi, whose impact was large enough, but not on this many levels. Yeah. And that's why Jimmy has the larger stature in some respects. Yeah, out of all the guitar gods, he's the biggest one. Yeah, who did more? No one. I mean, you can say Eddie Van Halen did... He he did for guitar another kick up the ass to another level, sure. certainly. But the scope of what he did was more contained than the scope of what Jimmy did. Yeah, and he was in, he was just as influential on a, on a next generation of guitar players. But you're not getting you're not getting, you know, going to California. You're not getting Cashmere. You're not getting Zeppelin three out of out of. Eddie, you're getting a much more concise package, a much more pop-oriented package. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, scope-wise, who cuts a wider swath than Jimmy Page other than maybe, you know, some people like Bowie, who is very experimental, or the Beatles. But it's not, but the Beatles isn't really in the hard rock uh genre. And the other thing that's interesting about Zeppelin also and you can say, you cannot say this about, you can almost every band of that era was hugely influenced by the Beatles in one way or another including Black Sabbath. We've talked about how, how important the Beatles were to everyone in Black Sabbath, especially Ozzy. Yeah. Hugely influential. You don't hear any Beatles influence in Zeppelin. I don't. No. There's no Beatles influence in Zeppelin. They they they're mainly blues influences there. Yeah, but I mean the Stones. The Stones have a Beatles influence. The Stones chased the Beatles for a while, especially in the '60s. They were trying to do and keep up with the Beatles and all everything. They got out of it. They became their own thing. Once the Beatles folded, the Stones took their own direction. But think of, I mean, The Who had some Beatles influence in it. Not a lot, but in the early pop days, there's no Beatles influence in Zeppelin that I could hear. And that's unusual. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing or a good thing. I'm just saying it's unusual to have an era, a band come out of that era that, does, that doesn't have a Beatles influence. Yes has a huge Beatles influence. It's Deep, Deep Purple, you put Beatles covers on their first album. Yeah, they only turned into a hard rock band 
after their what was it fourth album or the fourth album yeah. yeah but but on the first album they did a cover of help and i think they did another Beatles. I think they did two Beatles covers or something. like. That. And they did them psychedelically and stuff. But I mean, it's interesting that of all of those, Pink Floyd has a huge Beatles influence in just the sonics of the studio and, and doing the same stuff at Abbey Road that the Beatles did. Right. In the production side, their, their influence was huge from the Beatles. Zeppelin doesn't have a Beatles influence that I can hear. They're their own animal. And that's all coming out of Jimmy Page. So he was one of those rare super geniuses who just managed yeah. to get the right people together and the stars and planets aligned and something yeah. magical happened there. Absolutely. Okay, so what we just went over was the many, many, many strengths of Jimmy Page. And now we'll talk a little bit about his weaknesses and we'll come back to the ones a little bit we talked about earlier. And this, But, um, by the way, uh, follows the template on the website dinosaurrockguitar.com on which these podcasts are based so if you haven't visited that website be sure to do that dinosaurrockguitar.com correct and we're following that as a loose template but we seem to go off on tangents here and there uh as the conversation takes us but we're trying to get back on track here um so we, we've talked about as many strengths we'll talk about his weaknesses now or the ones you know that you know i think are perceived weaknesses um by some people including me um one of the weaknesses that people say about jimmy page is that chops was a weakness his guitar chops and uh i take some issue with this um during the zeppelin period i know what they're referring to but you'll hear guitarists who are basing their benchmark on 80s metal guitar say that Jimmy Page was a sloppy player. And by those standards, you can make that case that, you know, he would leave mistakes in and he would flub notes and things like that and, and play in you know a little bit messy and stuff. This was by no means news to Jimmy Page. He knew that. He was well aware of that. He never said he was he's he's like, I'm not I'm not, you know, the greatest lead guitarist out there right now. Um I'm you know I, my thing is to, you know, create music that's you know the zeppelin style of music this, this majestic music he you know he was not you know super clean player by the standards of the 80s certainly and to a certain extent they were cleaner and faster players in the 70s but they weren't as popular and they weren't as known you know you have you know richie blackmore being a lot cleaner and a lot you know faster than jimmy page you have guys like uli roth who were around at that time who was a brilliant player um Michael Schenker by the mid seventies is faster and cleaner. Alex Lifeson, guys like this who were, I guess you'd say less sloppy, but most of these guys didn't have the, uh, the visibility of a Jimmy page or the, you know, they weren't on the radio as much. You weren't hearing their playing as much. If you were a guitar player, you may have known them, but if you were just a fan, you were much more likely to be, hearing Jimmy Page on the radio playing with Zeppelin and and hearing that as your benchmark for great guitar playing. And whether he was sloppy or not, the fans never cared. Because like I said, even if he was playing sloppy, what he was playing, the ideas he was playing, the melodies he was playing, the solos he was playing were so memorable that people didn't care if he wasn't the cleanest player in the world from a, a technique standpoint because no one gave a shit, really. 
other than other guitarists. And even if you, if you think of it in that respect, Jimmy Page's chops were still way above average at that time during the Zeppelin years. He was better than most of the other bands out there, you know, the guys in Foreigner, the guys in Bad Company. Those kinds of players couldn't hold a candle to Jimmy Page. They couldn't do what he was doing. They couldn't play in his many styles. They couldn't play. And, and even if you're talking about pure flash and pure speed, most of them couldn't touch Jimmy Page, the average players of that era. Now, well, there were, like I said, there were exceptions who could, and there were exceptions who were better. But by and large, Jimmy was well above average in the chops standpoint during the Zeppelin years. Yeah. Well, if you listen to the How the West Was Won live album, I think his playing on there is faster and more intense than on a lot of the studio recordings. And it really right. kind of gives you the shows you a different side of his playing. Yeah, and yeah. I think we could we can probably do this in our in our clip, but there's a the classic example is the freestyle solo in Heartbreaker that we talked about before, where when he recorded that and he's doing that fast bit which is a lot of hammer-ons and pull-offs and stuff, it is a little choppy and a little sloppy and he's missing some notes and he's flubbing some notes. It's pure attitude anyway. It doesn't really matter. It was like he's playing on the edge of his ability to play fast, right? And it's sort of like there's drama in that. Yeah. You talk about drama and it's like, you know, it's a battle for him to be playing that at that speed. He's at the very edge of what he's capable of doing. Now, he records that and then he goes out on tour and starts playing Heartbreaker live every night. And once you're in the tour and you're playing it every night, you hear live versions of Heartbreaker. He's playing that same shit. He's playing it faster and he's playing it cleaner because he's in practice. And I think I have an example of that we can show. But, I mean, the point is, you know, he's not Ingve, he's not Eddie Van Halen in terms of the technique or anything like that. But those were not his peers. Compared to his peers, he was well above average in the chop standpoint. But if you try to hold him up to, like, you know, higher standards that came later, yeah, I can understand why people say he's not that. He's not. On the other hand... Jimmy is now, and the last times he was really playing in, in the 80s and the early 90s, he was a shell of what he was in Led Zeppelin as a lead player, if I'm honest. Um, you listen to Outrider, you listen to Coverdale Page, those are great albums, but from a lead guitar standpoint, he's just not what he was in Zeppelin. And it was mostly due to drugs, right? I, you know... Sometimes you could put it on that. I would certainly say during the last phase of Zeppelin, uh, during from about Presence, he was well. He was he made the whole Presence album. I think in eighteen days, it smacked out of his mind. But yeah. he made it, and it's you know. But on in through the outdoor, certainly you hear the down you know, the downgrade in his lead style, and then in the firm, he's awful. In my opinion, his lead playing is awful, and then it's better again on. Outrider, but it's less ambitious than it was in Led Zeppelin. And then on Coverdale Page, it's minimal. He's getting by on melody and smarts, and he doesn't have, for whatever reason, he doesn't have the technique at those at that time that he had in in the in his peak. Right. Now, is it drugs and atrophy and all of that? Maybe is it that he had 
there was at one point there was rumors he had some sort of arthritis or something. I don't know, but it, it just for whatever reason, after Led Zeppelin and after you know he he stopped being in Led Zeppelin, his chops just fell off a cliff. And it doesn't mean his ideas did, but his lead playing, you know, if we're honest, is just not what it was. And I don't think anybody would really deny that. But, you know, as we're talking about coinciding, certainly coinciding with the death of John Bonham from that point on where he was really, he let the drug use completely consume him. He was in the depression over the band folding. His life's work is now effectively over. And he he fell off a cliff in a lot of ways. But of all of the Zeppelin books that I've read and all of the Jimmy Page books that I've read, it's not news that he was into uh, heroin as early as like 1973. He started using heroin. That was around which album? Um... I think it was probably by the tour of of the House of the Holy tour. The, the, the you know the song yeah, remains the same era. That's right. Yeah, House of the Holy. Right. The fifth. You one. don't see it yet. You don't see it affecting his playing then, in '73. And um, I think my understanding about his heroin use also was never that it was it was always he was snorting it rather than injecting it. Not that there. Not that you can't get addicted that way and everything like that. But. Um, he started snorting heroin, I guess, around 73. Cocaine was, was rampant among all the bands in that era. And of course, as we once talked about before, one of the reasons that so many people got into heroin was they'd be so jacked up on cocaine they couldn't sleep and they needed to come down. And heroin would take you back down so that you could sleep. But uh, so he starts around 1973 with heroin. You don't really you don't really see it in the affecting the band at that point. By seventy five, and you get to like the Earl's Court footage of that concert, you can see he's he's looking a little different by then. It's still he's still functioning, you know, very well at a very high level, but uh, he's physically looking a little less healthy. I think a little more gaunt by seventy five. Not that he didn't still look good and still look cool and still have all the mystique and everything he did, and even longer hair. He looked he looked badass. But I mean, if you if you start looking at it from a point of like, do I see the heroin yet? Do I see the heroin yet? By seventy seven, you're definitely seeing the heroin. And um, you know, in in the footage that you can find from the nineteen seventy seven tour, he's super thin. I mean, he was always thin. There was never an ounce of fat on the man. But I mean, he's like rail thin now, and uh, not looking healthy and looking, you know, way more sweaty and puffy and, and like just his whole pallor and his, his complexion is off. And, you know, we, we find out, uh, you know, through several books that like his heroin use at this point is so dramatic that he's really out of it. A lot of the times they had to like carry him to the stage a lot of the times yeah. During that 77 tour. and He was like wheeled in a wheelchair onto the stage and through airports and stuff. And, yeah. Uh, and later on, they claimed that it was just for, for laughs. but Yeah, because he's now, like I said, he's never been able to own up to his own shit. <laughs> um, 
I mean, this it's is just, a it's crazy that you're so fucked up. Thread. I mean, it's like gonna... everybody knows it if you've ever read anything about it. But I mean, uh, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, the thing that I came away with was that even if you take away John Bonham's death, the thing that really destroyed Led Zeppelin was drugs. Um, and Page's drug use in particular, although Bonham was pretty much just as bad. If not worse, also obviously a little worse because right? he killed himself. Yeah, obviously a little worse because he he managed to let it kill him. But Page was so bad in his heroin addiction that it lasted through the firm years, which is the mid eighties. He only starts getting cleaned up towards the late eighties, and as early as the early nineties, he still got busted for cocaine twice in the early nineties, <laughs> even after he had kicked heroin. And by then he was, you know, like uh, his, what is it? He was 50? an elder state. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was like in his, you know, forties easily by then. You know, yeah. and uh, so, but it was really the heroin. And you know, after Zeppelin did come apart and Bonham died and all of that, and he he got further and further into the depression of of the Zeppelin being gone. The Ronnie Lane's arm con- arms concerts, where he did those uh, those versions of "Stairway to Heaven," is just a uh, an instrumental. He'd go on stage and play that by himself. He is like a camp victim, thin, like a concentration camp victim, thin, and he's like he's like his gums are receding, and his he's he, he his arms look like these pictures of camp victims you see, and he's wearing this boxy you know these boxy suits to try and cover it up. Because his vanity wouldn't let him do otherwise. He's a very vain man, too. So the drug use was a huge thing and a huge diminishing factor and ultimately led to the demise of Led Zeppelin. And the trouble that they got into as a band, and we come back to Peter Grant, who was also into heroin at that time and cocaine and doing mountains of blow and lots of heroin— it made them all very paranoid. It made them all very violent. It made the road crew violent. Richard Cole, their road manager, was also into that stuff. He was he was a, uh, a big part of the problem. That this dark vibe that followed Led Zeppelin around towards the middle part of their career and the late part of their career, where they were so into their drugs that every time they blow into town, there were issues with. The venues, issues with the promoters, issues with certain fans. They would get into trouble. They, you know, destroy every hotel room. They came. They went. Yeah, but it was a lot more serious than that. It was really a lot more serious than that. You have the scenario when they were supposed to play the festival in Oakland, and that's where it all really came apart. uh, At the end, where Bill Graham was holding this this festival, and Zeppelin was supposed to play this festival, and you know, Peter Grant and one of his lackeys someone peter grant's son was there and he took something like the led zeppelin sign off the trailer door because he was going to take it for a souvenir or something like that and one of bill graham's uh security people stopped him and told him to not do that and he and the kid said fuck you or whatever and the guy shoved peter grant's son knocked him down took the thing back Peter Grant hears about this, goes into a rage, and he and like a couple of his guys, they go find this roadie, this from from Bill Graham's team, and they beat the living shit out of him. In a in a 
Yeah, they, they drag him into a trailer and they beat him to a bloody mess. And they close the door and, and like one yeah. of them was holding him down while the other guy and, was and beating Bonham, him. And Bonham was there too. And Bonham was doing it. They all got arrested later for this. But I mean, this is where it, this is where it ended up in terms of the bad vibes that they were, they were bringing from town to town because they had gotten so big and so powerful as a, as a touring entity and as a band. And the, the Zeppelin story is in many ways, the classic absolute power, which they had corrupting absolutely, which they did. They had so much power and so much influence over what they did, where they played, who they played for, what they wanted to get for their money, what what you know, what factors had to be in place for them to even agree to play. They would change it if they wanted to. They were like running amok with power. And anything Jimmy wanted, Jimmy got. And for the most part, the rest of them did too. But we talked a little bit about Peter Grant in the early parts of this conversation. Peter Grant, aside from securing them that big album deal at the beginning, Peter Grant changed the game and in terms of what promoters and venues would get versus what the band would get. And it used to be the band would get 10% in the venue and the promoter would get 90% of the door. And Peter Grant said, no, we're going to get 90%. You're going to get 10%. And while several of them balked at that, most of them were smart enough to realize that 10% of a Zeppelin door was pretty good thing to have. So they changed the touring model of like what the band would receive. And they had all of the negotiating power and they used it. And uh, they didn't win any friends that way out on the tour circuit because people resented that. And whether, you know, I think in, in many respects, Peter Grant was right. The band should make the money, you know, not the promoters. The lion's share of the money should go to the artist. But that was very new then because they had the power of being able to say, I'll put 58,000 people in your stadium as many nights as you want us to play. They start doing the math in their heads. Well, 10% of that is pretty good rather no. than having them say, we're not going to play here and you get nothing. It's take it or leave it. This is Zeppelin's terms. Take it or leave it. And most of them took it. So they changed that. So they were able to do largely whatever they wanted. Um, they had a legal team keeping them out of trouble when they needed to, you know, when they had bad things happen. They had, you know, the lawyers on, on staff taking care of things. And it was really, they had more clout than pretty much everybody else except maybe the Stones. I don't think the Stones wielded their clout the same way. But <laughs> Zeppelin wielded their clout with menace. And it was also this story that I found pretty uh, memorable was they were at some big, big show in the U.S. somewhere. And backstage, the cops found like uh, like a mountain of cocaine like enough to put you away forever for quite a while yeah, yeah. and um <laughs> and then i think it was probably peter grant he uh he started just started pulling out uh, dollar bills like you know started adding like thousands he could be like yeah he yeah he carried the, around he carried around a huge duffel bag of cash and the for, couple, thing, for, for to buy both buy cocaine and then to pay off cops 
And yeah. and at the beginning, the cops are saying like, "No, you're you know we're not allowing this." It's like, oh yeah, you're still not allowing this. Well, just putting. Yeah, it. And he puts five thousand on the table, and then he, he puts, puts ten thousand yeah, on the table. Exactly. Yeah, and then it's like by the time they're up to like twenty five thousand, the cops are like, "What cocaine?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that was that's what I'm talking about: absolute power <laughs> to do that, whatever you want, and to get away with it. Now, you can say okay, but. When you're also doing the mountains of cocaine that's making you paranoid and making you violent, it's a, it's a bad marriage that is not going to end well. And it didn't. They were all coked up or was it mostly Jimmy Page and Bonham? I think they – I mean everybody but Jonesy I guess. And I'm sure he did some too but he never, he never let it – he never let anything get the better of him. Yeah. But Plant was certainly doing plenty of blow. And uh, – but not like, but not like Jimmy Page and, and Peter Grant and Richard Cole. Those guys were really and in Bonham and Bonham was always doing too much of everything. So, uh, yeah, and and Bonham was an instigator too and a mean drunk. So they, you know, he'd get into trouble too. And a big strong guy. Yep, yep. There was this malevolent aura about Led Zeppelin. And there's multiple stories of people saying, I just didn't, I was like, we had to have them come through town and play because it was, you know, economically you wanted it, but nobody enjoyed having them come through town to play. If you were the, if you were the venue or the promoter, they all kind of despised them wow. for the way they acted. You wouldn't think of that if you listen to their, especially their acoustic music, you know, it's all like lovely and love songs and everything and. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's not like Jimmy Page was was getting into physical altercations with anybody himself. He was too way too frail and too you know. But guys like Peter Grant and Richard Cole were big strapping guys. And Bonham, like I said, Bonham would get you know ripped and he'd be you know a violent drunk. And you see, there's this classic scene in in Song Remains the Same where Peter Grant Grant is ripping this guy a new asshole in in Madison Square Garden for selling pirate posters of the band. Right. Fucking talk to me. It's my bloody aunt. I did bet I'd leave you any time. You couldn't even get my starting line. You don't tell me that you... Let, I bet it wouldn't happen in Europe. I don't want to get out of the building. This isn't Europe or England. No, I can see that. You're so inefficient. Evidently, somebody got it. Talk to me, because I'm just trying to get the truth. You had people inside this Led Zeppelin in its grave. 
There's others. There's many stories of him going and finding the guys who were bootlegging the shows with their tape recorders, and he'd smash their tape recorders and take the tapes. He was not going to have his band exploited in any way. And the other thing we we didn't talk about this so much, but it was back to the creative control side. We'll talk about this a little in, in the, the discography. Is like they had control over their album art. Remember we talked about how Black Sabbath had no control over what the company was putting on their albums and stuff? Yeah. Led Zeppelin had ultimate control over every aspect of that stuff to the point where by the time they released the fourth album, Jimmy Page was so pissed off at the press for writing this and that about them. He wanted them to focus on nothing but the music. So he said, we're not even going to put our name on this album. We're just going to put this image of this, you know, this this photography on this album. Everybody knows what the album looks like. And it won't say Led Zeppelin on the sleeve and it won't say – and the record company's having apoplexy. You can't do that. No one will know. It's a, of course you could do it. You know, just like go in a record store. What's Which is the new Zeppelin album? That? Okay, I'll have that. It didn't affect their sales at all, but they, they, like I said, they had the power with the label. They had the power with over the promoters. They had the power over the venues. They had ultimate power at a time when the mid seventies was. If you let your ultimate power go to your head, and they certainly did, you know, you're going to end up with all of these problems with the drugs and the violence and all of this stuff and the groupie scene too, which we haven't gotten to. And we haven't gotten to that part of Jimmy Page's wonderful character is, <laughs> is, is how he was with his women. And, um, I had a whole suitcase with, uh, like whips and, and stuff yeah. like that with him at all times. Yeah. yeah. And the, the real thing that you hear from, from each of his women was that they all fell under his spell He could be very charming. He could be very uh, sweet. But he could also be a complete bastard. And by the time he was tired of you, he was off to the next one and you never heard. You know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, he's with someone else and you think you're, you know, you think you're seeing him that week and he's off with someone else already. So he was certainly uh, not anything like monogamous not that you'd expect that in that era or someone of his stature to be but i mean he just he just the way he treated his women was very much misogynistic you know even though they were all so into him a lot of them complained about the same sort of this dark this darkness that he had this aura that he had that was you know You get different stories from Pamela DeBars and Catherine Dreams and, and Laurie Maddox, who was only 14 when she started, you know, being Jimmy's girl. Laurie Maddox was a L.A. groupie who had lost her virginity to David Bowie even before she met Jimmy Page. He was, she was like 13. She looked older. But, I mean, Jimmy liked them young. Yeah. And Jimmy still likes them young. And Jimmy's girlfriend right now, Jimmy's now 74 or five or something like that. I don't know how these something mid seventies. His girlfriend's twenty eight, <laughs> and um, you know, no harm, no foul. But I mean, in those days, he was doing a lot of things that you don't you don't get away with anymore in the in the Me Too movement, and treating his women in in ways that uh, you know. Kind of surprised that whole thing haven't uh, come after the rock stars yet because. Uh, 
cheerleaders love there. <laughs> I think mostly it's because I, I agree with you. It's it's they're they're all fortunate because in those days it was an epic thing with the groupie scene. She talks about it now. And there was a great quote in that in that book we've been talking about where, you know, she finally ran into Jimmy Page much later. And and he, he was like, oh, Lori, we were so young back then. And she said, well, I was. Jimmy Page was 33. She was 14. And he kept her locked up in a hotel room so that no one else would have her. He'd be out all day or out all night. And he'd come back and have his way with her. You know, there's a lot of stories where, like, when he was in a good mood and treating them well, he treated them like queens and stuff. But people like Pamela DeBar and Catherine James were madly in love with him. And, you know, part of that's the mystique, part of that's the rock star thing. But, I mean, you know, he could be very nice to them, too. But, you know, when he was done with them, he was done with them, and he was on to the next thing. Yeah. Well, the whole groupie thing, that they kind of had their own little, like, groupie crew going from what i understood every town had them but i mean la was the famous scene and the scene the scene around the hyatt house the continental hyatt house which when zeppelin there was renamed the riot house they'd be coming and going all the time and when when jimmy was really infatuated with someone he'd make sure that he got that person he you know he he'd pick them out of the crowd he'd you know have someone send for them he all he had to do was lift a finger really and he'd have what he wanted and he could treat them, like I said, very well. He would, he would, he fly them over to England. He flew Catherine James over, and she lived with him for a little while. And then she, they flew her back. And when he was done with it, she was like, she, she actually had been like invited to stay, and and he wanted to be with her. And then she, she realized she didn't really want that life, and her life was back in L.A. But these other people, like Pamela DeBar, who were, who she was the groupie who was really put it all in the first book about that. And she was with everybody from, from Paige to Jagger to Keith Moon. She, she was with so many of them. Michael DeBars is the one she ended up marrying. There's this whole scene of those, of groupies spread across certainly America, but probably everywhere that in every town they knew, you know, Sweet Connie in, in, in Arkansas and all that, you know, all of those people were, part of those scenes. But I mean, Jimmy had his, his own specific women that he was with. And then he, had, you know, he did marry some people. He wasn't faithful to them, but you know, I, I can't speak to how any woman who's married to someone in Led Zeppelin or a band of that stature expects the husband to be monogamous out on the road in that era. Robert Plant wasn't either. Robert Plant usually comes off smelling like a rose compared to everybody else, but he had a wife and kids at home. And he wasn't being faithful either. So, but he wasn't—he wasn't dark and malevolent like Page was. Yeah, he—he he always seems like a friendly, soft-natured guy. In yeah, well, he's a big old hippie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At heart, yeah. So, uh, we talk about the weaknesses and character or lack thereof. You could point to Jimmy Page and say, okay, the womanizing, the drug use. The plagiarism, the not being able to, to to this day own up to the fact that he was a womanizer, a plagiarist, and a heroin addict. He still won't talk about any of that. It's like this is an ego vanity thing with him. And so 
as much as I love the music and the creativity and the vision and all that stuff, I see the man and his flaws as well. People like the Stones were much more honest about what they were doing. Right. In some ways, you know, and it's like, you know, like I said, well, I guess they would, I guess that that kind of is part of the mystique, too, maybe, you know, one has to wonder if they would have been quite as um, nefarious without the, the the amount of drugs they were doing. Right. For example, Keith Richards had a much bigger heroin product uh, uh, problem in some respects than Jimmy Page. Either he just handled it a lot easier because he's Keith. But um, yeah, that guy is, is really to, to my knowledge, no one has ever said anything about the way Keith treated women. Right. You know, Mick, certainly a Lothario. And would go off with your girl. If you if you look the other way, your girl would be gone. <laughs> and, you know. But. You know, other bands, they did a lot of the same things, but they didn't seem like I said, they didn't have this this menacing violence around them the way that Zeppelin did. For whatever reason. Were there any other bands during or after their reign that kind of had the same kind of vibe? They had the same kind of problems, but I mean, you know, you can look at Aerosmith and they certainly had all of all of the same drug problems or worse, probably worse. But they weren't, I mean, I never got the impression that, that Steven Tyler's soul was as dark as Jimmy Page's. And, you know, junkies will behave like junkies. And when you're when you're a junkie, all bets are off. You'll do anything. You'll say anything. You'll do anything to get your fix. And they certainly did. And they will sell anyone out and they will do whatever they got to do to get what they got to get. And uh, that's just drug use and, you know, junkie behavior. But sure, your 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 boys, Guns and Roses had a lot of these problems, too. Yeah. And by the way, a, a lot of Axl Rose and his behavior throughout the years is part of that absolute power corrupting absolutely. They got too big too fast and they bought their own hype and it went to their heads, at least not slashes so much, but certainly Axel's. I mean, that's why Axel became such a colossal asshole. <laughs> uh, and, you know, has only recently sort of backed off that a little bit. And, you know, to the point where they, you know, they were able to get back together. But, I mean, that's a page right out of the Zeppelin playbook, really. So, yeah, I mean, it's a timeless tale. But you're talking about... But they were the first use. to really do it that big that way, right? And that and that badly in terms yeah. of, like I said, like I said, it's one thing if the drug use doesn't spill over and, and start affecting people with violence and stuff like that, you know. Uh, but, you know, all bets go off when, you know, when you have people under that, that kind of drug use and stress and tension and paranoia and elevated sense of, of heightened sense of paranoia and you know, the Sabbath guys will tell you that the drugs destroyed the first lineup of Sabbath. Yeah, but Sabbath was never really about women the same way, right? Oh, they were doing just as many things. But again, you don't hear the stories of it being uh, as dark as it was. Right. It's all good fun, right? 
Yeah. You know, Keith Moon was the life of the party when he was drunk, not not so much a mean drunk. Keith Moon would drive his Rolls Royce into the swimming pool, but and you know, you know, get into all kinds of trouble that was, you know, but it was more lighthearted. It wasn't it wasn't it didn't came from a place of sense of humor. It didn't come from a place of menace like Bonham, like I'm telling you, Bonham was a mean drunk. Where do you think that that came from? Like, why why was Jimmy Page such a dark guy? Was it, it's know, hard to say. I mean, you just know, like a tortured I, genius who got kind of caught up in his own work. I mean, I, I mean, I think yeah. I mean, I mean, part of it is that. I mean, part of it is like you know he did cultivate this 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 mystique that we talked about, including the occult side of the mystique. He did you know whether he was. Like I said, I don't know if he's actively trying to come off as this like this dark character, but I don't think it bothered him that he did. I think he was sometimes you you create something like that, like Blackmore's reputation for being an asshole. He knows he has this reputation, and he but he's not above poking some fun at it. But Page, it's it's hard to know because it's like I, I remember reading an interview that he did. It must have been in the early 80s when he was still – if he was still – if he wasn't still on heroin, he sure looked like he still was on heroin. And it was some guitar magazine and the interviewer said he was – you know, he was really weird and acting really weird anyway. And someone brought him a bag of like Burger King for his lunch and he just let it sit there. And the, the interviewer asked him something and he said – and Paige said – what, do I look like a smack addict to you? And the interviewer didn't say it, but he was like, he absolutely looked like a smack addict <laughs> at that time. But I mean, he was in denial throughout this whole thing. And a lot of these guys have come clean and said, yeah, I mean, listen to Ozzy talk about his addictions and his problems. Listen to any of the Glenn Hughes, all these people who went through this shit come out the other side. They own up to it. Yeah. Not Jimmy. Not Jimmy. Never happened. Jimmy will only have you focus on the art. Now, only will have you focus on the, the musical output. He will not talk about the behavior, his behavior, the band's behavior, the management's behavior. And to me, at this point, I find that ridiculous. It's not. It's 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 been well documented history at this point. It's like, what kind of ostrich behavior is this sticking your head in the sand at this point in your life? to act like it didn't happen. So anyway, that's, you know, one of his weaknesses. Absolutely. And the, you know, the ego and, and of not being able to own up to it. And then I think the last thing you could claim is this nostalgia thing that where he, he only lives now in the past. The last, the last really good thing he did, in my opinion, Music-wise, well, he did the No Quarter album, which was, again, reinterpreting Led Zeppelin numbers. But the last original thing he did that was any good, in my opinion, was the Coverdale Page album. That was 1993, and he was still younger than I am now at that point in time. He, he could have put more music out. But instead, all he's focused on for the, since that time, really, is curating the Zeppelin catalog and re-releasing the Zeppelin catalog as remasters which was great and re-releasing them again as um, remasters with outtakes and alternate versions and things like that. 
repackaging Led Zeppelin over and over and over again, telling the stories again in the way he wants them told without any of the dark shit. And these packages that he puts out, whether they're musical or they're books, they have the same attention to detail that he always had when he was curating Zeppelin as an active member during the 70s. He still does everything absolutely to the most detailed, perfect way he wants it done. This book he put out last year, I guess it was, or a couple of years ago called the Jimmy Page Anthology, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's a a coffee table book that basically is the be-all and end-all of all of his possessions and gear. And again, he talks about his session days, all the way from his session days, all the way up through to the present. Every iconic piece of stage clothing that he ever wore, or even clothing that you, you've seen him in, in classic photographs of him when he wasn't on stage certain leather jackets he wore, things, your know, pants he wore, all of this stuff. He has taken glorious photography of these things and put them in this big coffee table book. And then when you get past that, so you get into, okay, here's pictures of the dragon suit. Here's pictures of the, the white suit with the, uh, the floral pattern on it, the silk white suit. And then he gets into all the gear and every guitar he owns picture of every guitar he owns, loads of pictures of them, every amp he owns, and the stories about where he got each thing and where he got this piece of gear, that piece of gear. Fascinating stuff. Really, really the be-all, end-all of all of the gear questions you would ever have. When I wrote the, the, uh, the Jimmy Page Alchemy profile, I didn't have any of that information. We had a lot of this information from other sources over the years, but here is Jimmy's own words of like, where I got this guitar, where I got that guitar, what, how, you know, how, how I painted the dragon telly and all of this stuff. And it's really this, everything about what he does now is nostalgia. It's all a look back. Well, to be fair though, there's nothing he can ever do that can ever surpass or top what he did in Zeppelin. I agree, but it doesn't mean that his other music was was not worth having or hearing. And I think he did, I mean, despite his uh, drop-off in lead skill, he was still capable of writing good songs on, on Outrider and on, on Coverdale Page. And those are strong albums, in my opinion. Some people don't like them. I think it's still very much Jimmy, being Jimmy, the the, the songwriter, the producer the guitarist, he's, he's, you know, still was finding ways to make new music as it were at that point. And then he got away from that and he did the album with the black crows where he's playing Zeppelin songs with the black crows. And who cares? I never cared about this. Why do I want to hear Jimmy page, a diminished Jimmy page playing Zeppelin songs with a diminished Zeppelin band. It never really held up for me, but yeah, then he puts out the box sets of both the albums and all of the video footage and this stuff, everything he puts out that is a Zeppelin related product is at an absolutely elevated high quality and as good as he can make it to this day. But that's all he does. He doesn't, he hasn't tried to make new music in forever. And you could argue that he probably had 20 years where he, he could have made new, more new music from the nineties on and he didn't he just he was he was retired without saying he was retired right and to me i would have liked more music 
Sure. So I, I put that a little bit, the nostalgia thing. I put some of that in the weakness column because I would have liked to have heard more music. I liked Outrider and I liked Coverdale Page. So I would I would have happily heard more of that. And there was talk, I think, recently, and I, I mean within the last year or so, and I know Coverdale's getting ready to retire, but there was talk of, should we do another Coverdale Page album? Because the two of them remain close. That would be really interesting. I mean, it's probably, it's it's not going to be, you know, they're a little both, a little past it, but I bet it would still be pretty good. But I, I don't believe it's going to happen. All right, so next up, the guitar gear, which and his guitar tone and guitar style, which yeah. is always an interesting discussion and which is always something people are very interested in generally. Sure. And, you know, a lot of the stuff is very well documented now. And um, there's been some some stories over the years and, and some cagey behavior from, from Jimmy himself on what he used and which things back in the day when he was – concerned about other people sort of taking his ideas or taking, you know, the gear he was into or something like that. But I mean, it's pretty well documented now. Um, in his studio days, by the time he becomes noteworthy, um, he was one of the first people I think to have a black Les Paul custom in the UK. And he used that on a lot of his sessions, but that guitar was eventually stolen and he didn't get it back to I think he may have gotten it back later or Gibson Gibson had ultimately put out a version of that guitar later and he's got one he played it in that celebration day the one with the Bigsby the black guitar the black Les Paul with the Bigsby uh, the gold the, Bigsby with the bridge with the yeah, yeah. The, the Bigsby tremolo bridge yeah so there was that and then in the Yardbirds it was a Telecaster and he was using an AC30 amplifier, a Vox AC30. We've talked about those in, in some of our gear podcasts. Before there were Marshalls, that was the British amp that most of the guys were using to get distorted tones. Um, it's a 30-watt Class A British 212 combo. And they sounded loud and they distorted well. And you could get a lot of great sound out of those. And, and um, Beck was using them. Page was using them. Blackmore was using them. Uh, the Who was using them until they got into, you know, they, they really put Marshall on the map, The Who. And then, uh, you know, of course, the Stones and the Beatles used Vox amps as well. So it was a British amplifier for British people, and who, this is what they had access to. And it was a distinctly different sound than the Fenders that were coming out of America. But um, it's funny, Jimmy Page using his Telecaster on the first Zeppelin album. He played that through a Supro amp. And that's a small, like 112 inch speaker amp that distorted really easily. And you have that album sounds very much like he's playing a Les Paul through a Marshall on his electric sound for the most part. I mean, there, there is some, there is some Telecaster brightness in some of it at times. But, I mean, we've talked about this before in, in some of the gear talks that we've had. Zeppelin 1, a lot of it sounds like a Les Paul through a Marshall because I think that was the sound that Jimmy had in his head. And once he got in the studio, he knew how to EQ his sound to make it sound that way. And then soon enough, by the time he's on to the second album, he is using a Les Paul and a Marshall. Uh, but... Supro uh, the is other still thing around. Is, Supro is still around, and the reason they're still around is because of Jimmy Page. 
That's if, if Jimmy Page had never used the Supra, that company would have been gone uh, probably before the 70s. Hmm. But when he said, I used this on the first album and I used this on the solo to Stairway to Heaven, all of a sudden people started gobbling up Supra amps. And this is one of the reasons he got cagey about telling people what he was using <laughs> because it's like he couldn't find them anymore. All of a sudden, you know, he wants to go get a new Supra amp or a replacement or whatever or backup. And because it's in print now that Jimmy Page used these amps to get this sound, they're not available anymore. Cool looking amps. Yeah. I mean, it's just a little practice amp, really. It's tube, though. I mean, it was a tube practice amp um, because they, you know, they didn't have solid state yet. But um, by the second album, Jimmy's on to his Sunburst Les Paul and early 100 watt EL34 amps, Marshalls. And I think he used some high watts uh, in that era, too, according to this this Jimmy Page anthology book. The other thing he said that I, that no one knew until later much later, was that live, I mean, you could probably find photographic evidence of this, but live in that early era of Led Zeppelin, he was using a Vox Super Beetle, uh, which was a, you know, I think a 100-watt Vox amp. And he said they sounded really good. And, you know, he toured with that, I think, in, in that, you know, during the Denmark stuff that he was doing in the days of, you know, early Zeppelin touring. He was using a Vox Super Beetle. Super he had, um, yep, he had Rickenbacker uh, Trisonic cabs, uh, which are these odd-shaped, tri- almost triangular, wedge-shaped cabs. Um, all of this stuff is chronicled in this Jimmy Page anthology book now. I mean, I can go through this, but I mean, if you, if you want the deep dive on Jimmy's gear, get this book. I mean, it's, it's he talks about every little nuance of the aspects of these of things and the, and the kinds of effects he was using at that time. The Super Beetle is um, a solid state amplifier. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And um, was did he use it because it just got really loud while staying clean, or what was the? Uh, it just uh, for whatever reason he liked the sound of it, and you know, for years he never mentioned that because he said he's like, if if I if I mention it, I'll never see one again. <laughs> and you know, fair enough that that did happen. So anyway. From around the time of the second album and the second you know album tour, it's pretty much Les Pauls and Marshalls from that point on. And his main Les Paul is a 1958 that he bought from Joe Walsh. And um, I think we have a clip of him telling the story. But Joe Walsh basically said, you know, you have to buy this guitar, Jimmy. This guitar was meant to be yours. And Jimmy's like, he ultimately said, Joe was absolutely right. What do you mean? No, when, when I acquired this from from Joe Walsh, who insisted that I bought it, and he was right, um, it had been refinished. And possibly one of the reasons why I wanted to sell it was the fact that maybe it didn't feel the same to him when he got it back. Um, and my feeling is that, because um, this is a little hazy, this is a long while ago, but for the sheer fact that these holes haven't been filled in, I've got a feeling that I would have changed the uh, machine heads that were the production ones to the Grover, which I was more familiar with from my um, Les Paul Custom. They're more sensitive and, uh, boy, they've held up from all those days back then anyway. So there we go, it says it all. So uh, essentially for tuning issues, just to... Purely for that, yeah, because, you know, a three-piece like Led Zeppelin, you couldn't have... Uh, 
a slipping machine head or something. Well, I can't like be fiddling around too much. Yeah. Um, the other thing I noticed immediately in, in uh, looking at this was the push-pull knob. Right. It's um, that one. Yeah. So is that something that you've had done? And well, I, I, I customized um, my number two Les Paul, which again is, you know, is, is a real old vintage one too. However, uh, that gave any combination of all of these. But it's a little fussy because all of these were push-pulls and have switches here and everything. But the reality of it was the thing that I found most important to me was the fact that you could reverse the phase on these. Mm -hmm. By reversing the phase, you get the uh, you get um, a close approximation to the sort of sound that Peter Green would get. Oh yeah, and also uh, certainly BB King. Now, whether some of these things came out um, with the pickups wide out of phase, um, you know, accidentally, I don't know. But I've got it on purpose, so there we go. Do you use it for specific oh, like sounds or oh, songs? Yeah, oh, yeah, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, I used it quite a, quite a bit. So this is on the recordings and things. Yeah. So, that so is it's just as simple as that. You just pull it out, and there it is. You've got it reverse, pop it back in, and you, you get the full, full whack of it again. Mm. And this guitar has also got a very, very slim neck, mm. and I think people probably speculate as to whether it came that way or you've had it done. Is that something that you had? I didn't. Have, I, I I didn't have it done. This guitar has sort of been. It's one of those guitars that really was meant to come my way. Um, because, as I say, Joe Walsh insisted that I bought it, and he was right. <laughs> and that's been his number one guitar ever since. And ever since then, he has largely been associated with Les Paul Marshall type of tone and was one of the guys who really did put that... He wasn't the first, but, I mean, he was one of the guys who put that sound on the map and made that a tonal benchmark in heavy rock and what would become heavy metal. Which um, um, model Marshall amp did he use? He liked the hundreds. I mean, whatever you know. I think it's the um, the hundred is the nineteen fifty nine model. I think or something like so that. Plexi. Yeah, Plexis are. But I mean, you know, Plexis were the earliest ones. But I mean, you know, he was using them throughout the seventies. But he would use four to six cabs in his back line, two stacked, and the rest were on the floor. Um, <laughs> That's a lot. The uh, it's it's a lot, but it was not more than any any of the rest of them were using at that time. Uh, it was interesting he knew to keep them on the floor and out of his eardrums, except for the one where you needed to, if you wanted to hear it. Some of that, you would use orange overdrives occasionally, too, and with the Marshalls. I don't know. Some of that, he would use the orange amps to run the um, the Echoplex and the, um, the Theremin thing. Um, sometimes I think he would use the amp, the orange amps in with his tone. Uh, but, you know, it was very much that British EL-34 sound. Um, sometimes it sounded pretty thin on recordings live, um, his tone. But certainly in, on the albums, it was very beefy because he was doing all the multi-tracking with this guitar army thing and stuff. Acoustic-wise, he, um, uh, he had a harmony acoustic, which was a comparatively cheap acoustic compared to like a Martin or a Gibson on the first album. He had um, a guitar made by Harmony and it was a good sounding guitar, a good sounding acoustic. And he used it a lot and he used it a lot on the first album. And I think he used it on the second album. He borrowed an SJ 200 to do babe, I'm going to leave you on the first album. So that's, that's a different sound. I think and Harmony's then, not as, around anymore. No, I don't think so. 
but uh, his old harmony acoustic was was very much the sound of the early uh, Zeppelin acoustic numbers. I think by the time he's on to Zeppelin three, he's got a Martin D twenty eight for his acoustic, and you see you certainly see that guitar on stage a lot when he's playing acoustic. It's a Martin by the time you get into the mid seventies. Oh yeah. So there's that. That's a serious guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then of course, uh, he recorded stairway to heaven, not with the double neck. He recorded the acoustic part with an acoustic and the electric part with an electric, but to play it live, that's when the double neck came into play. And he's, he's absolutely associated with this, this red double neck guitar that is iconic. And, you know, he's got like a dozen of them or something like that. He, you see it in the book, in this, in this anthology book, he's got many of these guitars now, but I think, you know, at first he just had the one and it allowed him to play the 12 string part on stairway and the six string part on stairway. And it became another part of this guitar God mystique that this guy's playing a two necked guitar at a time when not too many people had seen that. Yeah. And it's like, you know, he's, he's, he's playing 12 string, like, like a madman on song remains the same and all of these licks that are, you know, it's hard to play a 12 string guitar. You get, you know, those strings fight you a lot. It's like way more difficult to play 12 string nimbly than it is to play six string. So he was doing all of this stuff on the 12 string and he'd play, he'd play song remains the same and led and stairway to heaven, obviously. And rain song, he would also play on the double neck. Yeah. And that double neck, Gibson wasn't officially around anymore when he wanted one, and then Gibson yeah they had to yeah made they one made one for, for him. him yeah yeah and there's a picture I think before before Jimmy had one I think there's a picture of Pete Townsend playing one in black and white and there's there's even a picture of Elvis with one of those things really <laughs> yeah it's such a and cool cool looking thing man like just it like is, one I mean, neck it's, is it's the, you know it's the uh, guy who made it <laughs> iconic is jimmy yeah clearly um and you know other people then who were who were super influenced by jimmy alex lifeson got very famous for playing he had a white one um slash had rick one emmett, too, at one point yeah but he's not really associated with it rick emmett from triumph had a um uh, a double neck Ivan as artist, which must have weighed like 25 pounds. Those guitars are very heavy. The, the, the Gibson is at least based on the SG. It's not based on the Les Paul. If you had like a double neck Les Paul, you know, no one would be able to lift it. They'd be so damn heavy. But the SG was, it was still 11, 12 oh, pounds yeah, or something Ch- like maybe that. Maybe Jack Wilde could do that. But. Yeah, of course. And, you know, but, but it's like, those things, uh, you know, I know for, for like 20 years, Rush didn't play the double necks because they, they got to where like, we're too old for this. And towards the end, they busted him out again on occasion. But Jimmy Page is the guy who really was the first guy you really saw with a double neck guitar. And it still looked like immensely cool. And it just added to that, you really know, that does. whole thing he had, that whole thing in his so image badass. and everything. Yeah. And then he had this other guitar called a Dan Electro 59, which is really a cheap guitar. Dan Electro makes, um, you know, they, they're still around. They, st- and they too are probably still around because Jimmy Page put them really on the map. Uh, but they, they made guitars out of composite that are kind of like, you know, uh, glorified cardboard, really. <laughs> that's what they're they're made out of really you know like some some sort of a composite particle board 
uh, rather than wood. They're hollow bodied. And Jimmy found that they had a really interesting sound for doing certain kinds of uh, things like the stuff he would do um, on White Summer and, and Black Mountainside. And he would also play that one on Cashmere a bunch. He also played, there were times he played Cashmere on the Lost Paul, but I mean, you frequently would see him bust out that for uh, Cashmere. I find and, that they, uh, that they kind of have like a, like a surf rock Beach Boy type guitar sound. A bit. Not so much the way he uses it, but yeah. I yeah. mean, for him, I think it has it has this resonant quality that you don't get from a solid body. Yeah, there's a few times it, I, it, I just picked one up in the guitar store and played around with it. I was just like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is this sounds like the Beach Boys. You know, that's the first thing I think of. Right. Um, and then after Led Zeppelin, as he got back into doing like the firm, that band was associated with his brown Telecaster. He has a Telecaster uh, with a Parsons white B string bender on this thing, which is a, a bizarre device that um, when you basically it's built into like the strap lock so that if you push down on the neck, it pulls against the strap and your B string, the note you hit on the B string will bend. Oh, wow. And it gives you sort of like a pedal steel sound, like a twangy kind of thing. It's got a very limited usage in my opinion. Um, I never thought that guitar sounded like much of anything. Uh, he, he seemed to love it in that era. I never liked the way that guitar sounded personally. And I never, you know, I've never been a fan of what he did with the firm, even though some of it's okay. But I mean, it's, it's, sonically, it, it just wasn't to my liking. It's an interesting mechanism, man. Oops. Yeah, um, it was um, Graham Parsons, I think, is the guy who invented that thing with this guy. Gene Parsons. Parsons. Gene Parsons, yeah. yeah. Gene Parsons and whoever White was. Yeah, you can have anyway. one custom build for $6,000 if you want. Yeah, and you know, listen first and see if it's a sound you give a crap about because, it's like I said, it's got a very limited use. Um, so, he, you know, he had that going for a while. He has used strats on occasion. The most notable place you hear a strat is on the track in the evening where he does the whammy bar dip uh, in that song. And that's a strat. Mostly he would use it in the studio. If he was playing that, I did see he would play that. He would pull it out and play it. If he was going to play in the evening live, he would pull it out. But you don't see him with a strat very much. He was experimenting with Paul Reed Smith around the time of Outrider, but because that was the thing to do in those days, everybody was in that. That was like the late eighties, and and people like Gary Moore and Jimmy Page and people who were Alex Life, people who were not notably noted for using Paul Reed Smiths, were using those or trying those out um, because most of them had been Gibson players, and they you know were told that this is sort of a, a higher quality. Gibson-ish type of guitar, and we've talked about that too in our in our gear talk. It's a hybrid sound, and not one of them stayed with that with that guitar. Ultimately, even Alex Lifeson at the end was back to playing Gibsons, hmm. and and Page and Gary Moore stuck with it even even less. They they really they only used it for like a brief period. But for all intents and purposes, Jimmy Page we associate with the Les Paul. It's an iconic association that and the double neck when you think i mean you think of an image of jimmy page you think of him with a les paul or you think of him with that double neck even though the 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 telecaster in the in the early days was very prevalent and it was always used in the studio he still used it in the studio 
So, like I said, he tends to use the root one form of the chord rather than the root six form. Um, you get some interesting chord voicings, uh, and sometimes the stuff that you hear him do, it sounds more complicated than it is. And if you're trying to figure out, it can initially stump you. But once you figure it out, you're kind of like, duh, that's so easy. Why didn't I think of that? And if you're trying to learn Led Zeppelin songs and, you know, you can't figure out what he's doing, try something simple because it's usually he's done something simple that, you you know, you wouldn't necessarily suspect. The other side of the coin is that many of Jimmy's songs, particularly the acoustic ones, do use the non-standard tunings that we talked about that either Jimmy, some of them he invented himself or is certainly responsible for bringing them to to rock. And some of them are, you know, very, very well-known tunings, but um, they are usually not open chord tunings, like the kind of things you get with Keith Richard. Keith, Keith uses open chord tunings. Jimmy's tunings are, are, are different. And he was also the, one of the first players to popularize, like, the drop D tuning. That's when you take the lower E string, step down to D. Yeah. And that gives you all kinds of interesting riff possibilities. Which songs did he use that? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> uh, let me think about that. Let's see. Ten years gone. Cashmere. No. Cashmere is not in drop oh, D. It's Celtic tuning. That's right. Yeah. Ten years gone is drop D. Cashmere is Celtic. That's D A D G A D. Friends is open C tuning. C Moby Dick. Moby Dick is is in drop D. Ten years gone is I guess in drop D. I, I guess going to California's intro is in drop D. The most obvious example would be Moby Dick. The you know that one. Yeah. You know. So in addition to the chords he uses and the things he's he's doing that way, some of the most characteristic page trademarks involve Jimmy's very unique sense of rhythm. Uh, we talked about a lot about Iommi's sense of rhythm. Page's sense of rhythm is very unique too. He's We've talked about this a little too. He's very synced up to and plays off of what the drummer does and what the drummer is giving him. It's pretty clear that he's often guiding his drummers on what to play so that he can work off of what they're playing. And characteristic things are like stop-start rhythms in Black Dog and Hots On For Nowhere and Out On The Tiles and staccato accents along with what the drum is doing that are synced up with the snare drum, for example, on like Achilles' Last Stand, where he's going da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
the point is he is very synced up with the drummer in a way that a lot of players just sort of use the drummer as a metronome or a glorified metronome. Jimmy's always doing more interesting things than just that. Custard pie has the same kind of thing in it as well. And these devices that we're talking about have become hard rock staples. You hear a lot of this with people who play with Cozy Powell because Cozy those does a lot of those kinds of drum figures, these stop-start figures, these things where he chokes the cymbal off and goes, pss, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And the guitarist will, will play along with the accents. And these are things that are, like I said, they've become very much heavy rock, heavy metal staples, but they come from Jimmy Page, really, again. And it's hard, in fact, to use these things in your music without sort of nodding your hat to Zeppelin. It's, it's almost a Zeppelin cliche to use some of these techniques in your own music. The way it's like if you tap, you're, 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 you're still going to be associated with Eddie on some level, right? If you, if you try right. to still tap on guitar. If you use Zeppelin cliches in your music, people will associate that with, you know, oh, he's doing the Zeppelin thing. And, you know, maybe you get away with it and it's fine. But, you know, if you, if you go too close to the sun, you burn up. <laughs> so... Uh, there's this other thing that he does that is very characteristic, and I call it turning the beat around. I don't know what you would really call this musically, but where it sounds as if the whole song stutters briefly, and we can play an example of this, but you can hear it on things like Royal Orleans and on the Coverdale Page album, Pride and Joy, where the whole song seems to stutter and then the beat goes from one beat to like turns around. Mm. Yeah. Most of these Jimmy Page trademarks are so associated with Led Zeppelin and so familiar and in some cases so cliched that it's easy to just gloss over them when you're listening to Led Zeppelin for enjoyment. So it's important to note that most of these examples I'm talking about come from Led Zeppelin. Even after he was out of Led Zeppelin, Jimmy's post-Zeppelin work still contained all of these elements. And you can hear this stuff a lot in Outrider and on Coverdale Page, which are both very much like rhythmic resumes of what he's about rhythmically. Both of those albums have all of these Jimmy Pageisms on them. And, that, you know, people say, oh, this is why, you know, he sounded like, you know, he was ripping off himself in Led Zeppelin. No, this is just the way he plays. This is part of what's his sonic signature. This is his DNA as a player is to have this rhythmic sense and these rhythmical kinds of ideas, you know? And so it's it's always there. Jimmy Page plays a fair amount of slide guitar. You know, not tons and tons, but as an effect, you can hear it on a whole lot of love. It's, sometimes it's part of, like, the solo and what is and what should never be, which we've talked about. It's a slide solo. In my time of dying. That's the tour de force. 
I mean, that's Jimmy going absolutely bonkers with the slide. And it's, it's one of the best Zeppelin tracks of all time, in my opinion. It's just so awesome from everybody's perspective. And he just goes off on slide guitar there. And basically it's, it's totally badass. And of course it's one of Bonham's best tracks. In my opinion, it's one of, it's one of everybody in that band's best tracks. We talked a little about his lead playing. He's like I said, almost exclusively a pentatonic player, mostly minor, some major, but you know, there are times he will, slip in chromatics and, you know, certain other notes. Uh, and then, of course, occasionally he will use other scales. He will, you know, he will go for those Eastern flavors uh, and and throw in some more exotic stuff. But, I mean, you know, it's 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 more of a, a, of a seasoning thing rather than the bread and butter. The bread and butter is, is the pentatonics and the blues scale stuff. Uh, you get plenty of hammer-ons and pull-offs and flashy repeating patterns and things like that. We talked about the fact that many of these licks are now considered, these Jimmy Page licks are considered stock hard rock licks now. Uh, and, you know, how influential they were. His picking is is very much a 70s style, blues style of picking. He's not what you'd call a pure alternating picker guy. He doesn't have that level of facility with his picking hand. He's rather sloppy picking hand by modern standards. Pretty heavy handed, too. Um. When he wants to be, he's heavy handed, and when he wants to be, he's he can he can back that off and be pretty light. You know, back in those days, a lot of the guys weren't using the heavy, the, the tiny, heavy, small picks that they use for lead these days. You know, you know, most of these guys are using like medium thin picks that are the normal, you know, fender size pick size and stuff, and they were just doing it at that at that point in time. When he was doing his solos, he claims he didn't usually compose his solos. He admits to working out a phrase or two. His approach, he claims, was to wing it. And the, the quote that I have is he'd usually just limber up, record three solos and pick the best one. And when, that's pretty amazing when you think about it in the live setting. Jimmy would, you know, obviously go off and do other things. But if you, you know, the whole story about Stairway to Heaven solo was like, you know, he picked he had worked out the entrance and he had worked out the exit to the solo. But the middle part, he kind of went in and winged it. And there were three, I guess there were three or four, I don't know, something like, you can, you can find three or four takes of that yeah. and they're, they're all available. You can hear them. And the one that we all know in, from the song is clearly the best of the bunch, but his other takes were sort of impromptu. So he didn't like, you know, like some people will go in and work out everything from the beginning note to the last note. He would work out a bit of it and then the rest of it, he would sort of leave the door open for improvisation and um again live they would extend all these numbers and you'd get even when like the stairway to heaven solo they would extend that to ridiculous lengths of 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 being long and drawn out interestingly enough it was mostly it still mostly worked but it didn't have quite you know that impact of that tight solo that we all know and love from that song but in a lot of cases like dazed and confused could go on for a half hour yeah. and uh, just make some, love. some random songs in there from yeah other songs. And it was just it was just you know that was that era of of players and guys would do that in those days that's what you would get live but in the studio, most of his solos were fairly concise. 
he would stretch out on occasion. There are some longer ones. The solo in Achilles' last stand is pretty long. But, you know, he'd sometimes do a short one, too, like in Celebration Day. It's, you know, it's a quick little 16-bar thing. And very melodic, too, like the one in No Quarter. I really like that one. It's very unique. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a lot of raunchy attitude in that song. And it's like, he was great at, at like, yeah, you're right. It's super melodic and super memorable. Right. Yeah. You can you can you can remember them. You can hum them for the most part. But there's there's just like loads of attitude there, too, in, in a lot of these songs and whatever that attitude needed to be. And sometimes the attitude is raunchy and sometimes the attitude is is not. And sometimes it's something else. But he was always able to, to come up with the right thing, whether it was a long solo or a short solo. And there's a story where he was like talking about, you know, the Achilles last stand solo. And John Paul Jones was saying you're not going to be able to solo over this. This is a weird progression. You know, you know, you're not going to find anything that's going to work. And Jimmy was saying, no, I already know what I'm going to do over this. It's going to be just fine. Just trust me. And, you know, he comes out and pulls that, that, that ridiculous solo out. Some people think that's sort of like, you know, we'll talk about it when we talk about presence, but I mean, that's one of those tracks that people talk of like, you know, as point to as like sort of an early metal track, if you will. Right. It's it's compared to a lot of the other things, and that's that's a term Jimmy never wanted associated with uh, Led Zeppelin. He runs away from that association the way Clapton runs away from being a guitar hero. Right. So um, we're down to vibrato uh, with with Jimmy. You get some wide bends, but his vibrato itself is pretty narrow and quick and thin, kind of like himself. Um, <laughs> you don't get much whammy bar at all because he's always on a Les Paul or Telly. But occasionally you get that B-bender thing in and, – and mostly – I can't remember where that is. It's, it's on Zeppelin. But, I mean, it's more in the firm. You'll hear that thing more in the firm because he was using that guitar in the firm. But um, that's about the story with his guitar style. All right. Well, do we have anything else uh, to discuss regarding uh, Mr. Page? I think we've covered everything, unless there's something you want to cover that I didn't bring up. Uh, and then, of course, the discography we'll do tomorrow. But I mean, I think most of my comments and questions will be in that part, really. We only did what four and a half hours. Yeah, <laughs> only not five, that, almost five yeah, hours. Not know. that much, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's right. crazy. Well, I think uh, this would be a good uh, point to wrap up part yeah. one. Yep, yeah. and. Um, We'll get on tomorrow, same time, and... Um, yeah, man. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. All right, everybody. Thank you all for listening to this episode, and thank you, Dave, for joining and working together with me to put this together. It's, it's a joy every time, and uh, couldn't be more proud of the end result. Be sure to check the show notes or the description if you're watching this on YouTube which I recommend anyway because there's video footage and photos in there as well. In the description and show notes, there's links to every book, every album, and everything we discussed. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out the previous episodes we have done. You can find it on the YouTube channel or on my website, Dietrich.blog. You can, I mean, if you look for it, you'll find it. And also be sure to visit DinosaurRockGuitar.com. Lots of great content there and the main inspiration behind these episodes. And that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, you have 
quite a bit to look forward to because the next ones are going to be a deep dive into the music Jimmy Page has created. We'll go through every album of Led Zeppelin and everything he did afterwards. And, well, that weren't its own episode. Or episodes, I should say. Plural. Because way too much to put into one episode. Anyway, thanks everybody. Love you. Bye. Till soon.